welcome to Prose for the Days. Thank you for joining me for the third installment of Shirley by Charlotte Bronte. If you're reading along at home, today's episode encompasses chapters 9 through 12. Do you have your tea? Today I have chamomile. Great, let's dive back in. Chapter 9, Briarmains. Messrs. Hellstone and Sykes began to be extremely jocose and congratulatory with Mr. Moore when he returned to them after dismissing the deputation. He was so quiet, however, under their compliments upon his firmness, etc., and wore a countenance so like a still, dark day, equally beamless and breezeless, that the rector, after glancing shrewdly into his eyes, buttoned up his felicitations with his coat, and said to Sykes, whose senses were not acute enough to enable him to discover unassisted where his presence and conversation were a nuisance, "'Come, sir, your road and mine lie partly together. Had we not better bear each other company, we'll bid more good morning, and leave him to the happy fancies he seems disposed to indulge.' "'And where is Sullivan?' demanded Moore, looking up. "'Aha!' cried Hellstone. "'I've not been quite idle while you were busy. "'I've been helping you a little. "'I flatter myself not injudiciously. "'I thought it better not to lose time. "'So while you were parlaying with that down-looking gentleman, "'Farron, I think his name is, "'I opened this back window, shouted Murgatroyd, "'who was in the stable, to bring Mr. Sykes's gig round. "'Then I smuggled Sugden and his brother Moses, "'wooden leg and all, through the aperture, "'and saw them mount the gig, "'always with our good friend Sykes's permission, of course. "'Sugden took the reins. "'He drives like Jehu.' and in another quarter of an hour Barraclough will be safe in Stilbro jail. Very good, thank you, said Moore, and good morning, gentlemen, he added, and so politely conducted them to the door and saw them clear of his premises. He was a taciturn, serious man the rest of the day. He did not even bandy a repartee with Joe Scott, who, for his part, said to his master only just what was absolutely necessary to the progress of business, but looked at him a good deal out of the corners of his eyes, frequently came to poke the counting house fire for him, and once, as he was locking up for the day, the mill was then working short time owing to the slackness of trade, observed that it was a grand evening, and he could wish Mr. Moore to take a bit of a walk up the hollow, it would do him good. At this recommendation, Mr. Moore burst into a short laugh, and after demanding of Joe what all this solicitude meant, and whether he took him for a woman or a child, seized the keys from his hand and shoved him by the shoulders out of his presence. He called him back, however, ere he had reached the yard gate. Joe, do you know those farons? They are not well off, I suppose? They cannot be well off, sir, when they've not had work as a three-month. You'd see your sailing at William Sorley chained, fair-paired. They've sailed most of the stuff out the house. He was not a bad workman. You never had a better, sir, since you began trade. And decent people, the whole family, near to center. The wife's a rate camp body and is clean. You might eat porridge off the house floor. They're sorely come down. I wish William would get a job as a gardener or something in that way. He understands gardening well. He once lived with a Scotchman that taked him the mysteries of the craft, as they say. Now then, you can go, Joe. You need not stand there staring at me. You've no orders to give, sir? None but for you to take yourself off, which Joe did accordingly. Spring evenings are often cold and raw, and though this had been a fine day, warm even in the morning and meridian sunshine, the air chilled at sunset, the ground crisped, and ere dusk a hoar-frost was insidiously stealing over growing grass and unfolding bud. It whitened the pavement in front of Briarmeans, Mr. York's residence, and made silent havoc among the tender plants in his garden and on the mossy level of his lawn. As to that great tree, strong-trunked and broad-armed, which guarded the gable nearest the road, it seemed to defy a spring-night frost to harm its still bare boughs and so did the leafless grove of walnut trees rising tall behind the house. In the dusk of the moonless, if starry night, lights from windows shone vividly. This was no dark or lonely scene, nor even a silent one. Briarmeans stood near the highway. It was rather an old place, and had been built ere that highway was cut, and when a lane winding up through fields was the only path conducting to it. Briarfield lay scarce a mile off. Its hum was heard, its glare distinctly seen. Briar Chapel, a large, new, raw, Wesleyan place of worship, rose but a hundred yards distant and as there was even now a prayer meeting being held within its walls, the illumination of its windows cast a bright reflection on the road, while a hymn of a most extraordinary description, such as a very Quaker might feel himself moved by the spirit to dance to, 
roused cheerily all the echoes of the vicinage. The words were distinctly audible by snatches. Here's a quotation or two from different strains, for the singers passed jauntily from hymn to hymn and from tune to tune, with an ease and buoyancy all their own. Oh, who can explain this struggle for life, this travail and pain, this trembling and strife? Plague, earthquake and famine, and tumult and war, the wonderful coming of Jesus declare. For every fight is dreadful and loud, the warrior's delight is slaughter and blood, his foes overturning till all shall expire, and this is with burning and fuel and fire. Here followed an interval of clamorous prayer, accompanied by fearful groans. A shout of, I've found liberty! Dota bills has fun liberty! rang from the chapel, and out all the assembly broke again. What a mercy is this! What a heaven of bliss! How unspeakably happy am I! Gathered into the fold, with thy people enrolled, with thy people to live and to die. Oh, the goodness of God is employing a clod, his tribute of glory to raise, his standards to bear, and with triumph declare his unspeakable riches of grace. Oh, the fathomless love that has deigned to approve and prosper the work in my hands. With my pastoral crook, I went over the brook, and behold, I am spread into bands. Who I ask in amaze hath begotten me these, and inquire from what quarter they came. My full heart it replies, they are born from the skies, and gives glory to God and the Lamb. The stanza which followed this, after another and longer interrogum of shouts, yells, ejaculations, frantic cries, agonized groans, seemed to cap the climax of noise and zeal. Sleeping on the brink of sin, Tophet gaped to take us in, mercy to our rescue flew, broke the snare and brought us through. Here is in a lion's den, undevoured we still remain, past secure the watery flood hanging on the arm of God. Here, terrible, most distracting to the ear, was the strange shout in which the last stanza was given. Here we raise our voices higher, shout in the refiner's fire, clap our hands amidst the flame, glory give to Jesus' name. The roof of the chapel did not fly off, which speaks volumes in praise of its solid slating. But if Briar Chapel seemed alive, so also did Briarman's, though certainly the mansion appeared to enjoy a quieter phase of existence than the temple. Some of its windows too were aglow, the lower casements opened upon the lawn, curtains concealed the interior, and partly obscured the ray of the candles which lit it, but they did not entirely muffle the sound of voice and laughter. We are privileged to enter that front door and to penetrate to the domestic sanctum. It is not the presence of company which makes Mr. York's habitation lively, for there is none within it save his own family, and they are assembled in that farthest room to the right, the back parlor. This is the usual sitting room of an evening. Those windows would be seen by daylight to be of brilliantly stained glass, purple and amber the predominant hues, glittering round a gravely tinted medallion in the center of each, representing the suave head of William Shakespeare and the serene one of John Milton. Some Canadian views hung on the walls, green forest and blue water scenery, and in the midst of them blazes a night eruption of Vesuvius, very ardently it glows, contrasted with the cool foam and azure of cataracts, and the dusky depths of woods. The fire illuminated in this room, reader, is such as, if you be a southern, you do not often see burning on the hearth of a private apartment. It is a clear, hot coal fire, heaped high in the ample chimney. Mr. York will have such fires even in warm summer weather. He sits beside it with a book in his hand, a little round stand at his elbow supporting a candle, but he is not reading. He is watching his children. Opposite to him sits his lady, a personage whom I might describe minutely, but I feel no vocation to the task. I see her, though, very plainly before me. A large woman of the gravest aspect, care on her front and on her shoulders, but not overwhelming, inevitable care, rather the sort of voluntary, exemplary cloud and burden people ever carry who deem it their duty to be gloomy. Ah, well a day, Mrs. York had that notion, and grave as Saturn she was, morning, noon, and night. And hard things she thought of an unhappy wight, especially of the female sex, who dared in her presence to show the light of a gay heart on a sunny countenance. In her estimation, to be mirthful was to be profane, to be cheerful was to be frivolous. She drew no distinctions. Yet she was a very good wife, a very careful mother, looked after her children unceasingly, was sincerely attached to her husband. Only the worst of it was, if she could have had her will, she would not have permitted him to have any friend in the world beside herself. All his relations were insupportable to her, and she kept them at arm's length. Mr. York and she agreed perfectly well, yet he was naturally a social, hospitable man, an advocate for family unity, and in his youth, as has been said, he liked none but lively, cheerful women. Why he chose her, how they contrived to suit each other, is a problem puzzling enough, 
but which might soon be solved if one had time to go into the analysis of the case. Suffice it here to say that York had a shadowy side as well as a sunny side to his character, and that his shadowy side found sympathy and affinity in the whole of his wife's uniformly overcast nature. For the rest, she was a strong-minded woman, never said a weak or a trite thing, took stern, democratic views of society and rather cynical ones of human nature, considered herself perfect and safe and the rest of the world all wrong. Her main fault was a brooding, eternal, immitigable suspicion of all men, things, creeds, and parties. This suspicion was a mist before her eyes, a false guide in her path, wherever she looked, wherever she turned. It may be supposed that the children of such a pair were not likely to turn out quite ordinary, commonplace beings, and they were not. You see six of them, reader. The youngest is baby on the mother's knee. It is all her own yet, and that one she has not yet begun to doubt, suspect, condemn. It derives its sustenance from her, it hangs on her, it clings to her, it loves her above everything else in the world. She is sure of that, because, as it lives by her, it cannot be otherwise, therefore she loves it. The two next are girls, Rose and Jessie. They are both now at their father's knee. They seldom go near their mother, except when obliged to do so. Rose, the elder, is twelve years old. She is like her father, the most like him of the whole group. But it is a granite head copied in ivory. All is softened in color and line. York himself has a harsh face. His daughter's is not harsh. Neither is it quite pretty. It is simple, childlike in feature. The round cheeks bloom. As to the gray eyes, they are otherwise than childlike. A serious soul lights them. A young soul yet, but it will mature if the body lives, and neither father nor mother have a spirit to compare with it. Partaking of the essence of each, it will one day be better than either, stronger, much purer, more aspiring. Rose is a still, sometimes a stubborn girl now. Her mother wants to make of her such a woman as she is herself, a woman of dark and dreary duties, and Rose has a mind full-set, thick-sown, with the germs of ideas her mother never knew. It is agony to her often to have these ideas trampled on and repressed. She has never rebelled yet, but if hard-driven she will rebel one day, and then it will be once for all. Rose loves her father. Her father does not rule her with a rod of iron. He is good to her. He sometimes fears she will not live, so bright are the sparks of intelligence which, at moments, flash from her glance and gleam in her language. This idea makes him often sadly tender to her. He has no idea that little Jessie will die young. She is so gay and chattering, arch original even now, passionate when provoked, but most affectionate if caressed, by turns gentle and rattling, exacting yet generous, fearless, of her mother, for instance, whose irrationally hard and strict rule she has often defied, yet reliant on anyone who will help her. Jessie, with her little piquant face, engaging prattle, and winning ways, is made to be a pet, and her father's pet she accordingly is. It is odd that the doll should resemble her mother feature by feature, as Rose resembles her father, and yet the physiognomy, how different. Mr. York, if a magic mirror were now held before you, and if therein were shown you your two daughters if they will be twenty years from this night, what would you think? The magic mirror is here, you shall learn their destinies, and first, that of your little life, Jessie. Do you know this place? No, you never saw it. But you recognize the nature of these trees, this foliage, the cypress, the willow, the yew. Stone crosses like these are not unfamiliar to you, nor are these dim garlands of everlasting flowers. Here is the place, green sod and a gray marble headstone. Jessie sleeps below. She lived through an April day. Much loved was she, much loving. She often, in her brief life, shed tears. She had frequent sorrows. She smiled between, gladdening whatever saw her. Her death was tranquil and happy in Rose's guardian arms, for Rose had been her stay and defense through many trials. The dying and the watching English girls were at that hour alone in a foreign country, and the soil of that country gave Jessie a grave. Now, behold Rose two years later. The crosses and garlands look strange, but the hills and woods of this landscape look still stranger. This, indeed, is far from England. Remote must be the shores which wear that wild, luxuriant aspect. This is some virgin solitude. Unknown birds flutter around the skirts of that forest. No European river this, on whose banks Rose sits thinking. The little, quiet Yorkshire girl is a lonely emigrant in some region of the southern hemisphere. Will she ever come back? The three eldest of the family are all boys, Matthew, Mark, and Martin. They are seated together in that corner, engaged in some game. Observe their three heads, much alike at a first glance, at a second, different, at a third, contrasted. Dark-haired, dark-eyed, red-cheeked are the whole trio. 
small English features they all possess, all own a blended resemblance to sire and mother, and yet a distinctive physiognomy, mark of a separate character, belongs to each. I shall not say much about Matthew, the firstborn of the house, though it is impossible to avoid gazing at him long and conjecturing what qualities that visage hides or indicates. He is no plain-looking boy. That jet-black hair, white brow, high-colored cheek, those quick, dark eyes are good points in their way. How is it that, look as long as you will, there is but one object in the room, and that the most sinister, to which Matthew's face seems to bear an affinity, and of which, ever and anon, it reminds you strangely, the eruption of Vesuvius. Flame and shadow seem the component parts of that lad's soul, no daylight in it, and no sunshine, and no pure, cool moonbeam ever shown there. He has an English frame, but apparently not an English mind. You would say, an Italian stiletto in a sheath of British workmanship. He is crossed in the game. Look at his scowl. Mr. York sees it, and what does he say? In a low voice he pleads, Mark and Martin, don't anger your brother, and this is ever the tone adopted by both parents. Theoretically, they decry partiality. No rights of primogeniture are to be allowed in that house, but Matthew is never to be vexed, never to be opposed. They avert provocation from him as assiduously as they would avert fire from a barrel of gunpowder. Concede, conciliate is their motto wherever he is concerned. The Republicans are fast making a tyrant of their own flesh and blood. This the younger scions know and feel, and at heart they all rebel against the injustice. They cannot read their parents' motives. They only see the difference of treatment. The dragon's teeth are already sown amongst Mr. York's young olive branches. Discord will one day be the harvest. Mark is a bonny-looking boy, the most regular featured of the family. He is exceedingly calm. His smile is shrewd. He can say the driest, most cutting things in the quietest of tones. Despite his tranquility, a somewhat heavy brow speaks temper, and reminds you that the smoothest waters are not always the safest. Besides, he is too still, unmoved, phlegmatic to be happy. Life will never have much joy in it for Mark. By the time he is five and twenty, he will wonder why people ever laugh and think all fools who seem merry. Poetry will not exist for Mark, either in literature or in life. Its best effusions will sound to him mere rant and jargon. Enthusiasm will be his aversion and contempt. Mark will have no youth. While he looks juvenile and blooming, he will be already middle-aged in mind. His body is now fourteen years of age, but his soul is already thirty. Martin, the youngest of the three, owns another nature. Life may or may not be brief for him, but it will certainly be brilliant. He will pass through all its illusions, half believe in them, wholly enjoy them, then outlive them. That boy is not handsome, not so handsome as either of his brothers. He is plain. There is a husk upon him, a dry shell, and he will wear it till he is near twenty. Then he will put it off. About that period he'll make himself handsome. He will wear uncouth manners till that age, perhaps homely garments, but the chrysalis will retain the power of transfiguring itself into the butterfly, and such transfiguration will, in due season, take place. For a space he will be vain, probably a downright puppy, eager for pleasure and desires of admiration, a thirst, too, for knowledge. He will want all that the world can give him, both of enjoyment and lore. He will perhaps take deep draughts at each found. That thirst satisfied, what next? I know not. Martin might be a remarkable man. Whether he will or not, the seer is powerless to predict. On that subject, there has been no open vision. Take Mr. York's family in the aggregate. There is as much mental power in those six young heads, as much originality, as much activity and vigor of brain, as, divided amongst half a dozen commonplace broods, would give to each rather more than an average amount of sense and capacity. Mr. York knows this, and is proud of his race. Yorkshire has such families here and there amongst her hills and wolds, peculiar, racy, vigorous, of good blood and strong brain, turbulent somewhat in that pride of their strength, and intractable in the force of their native powers. Wanting polish, wanting consideration, wanting docility, but sound, spirited, and true-bred as the eagle on the cliff or the steed in the steppe. A low tap is heard at the parlor door. The boys have been making such a noise over their game, and little Jessie, besides, has been singing so sweet a Scotch song to her father, who delights in Scotch and Italian songs, and has taught his musical little daughter some of the best, that the ring of the outer door was not observed. Come in, says Mrs. York, in that conscientiously constrained and solemnized voice of hers, whichever modulates itself to a funereal dreariness of tone, though the subject it is exercised upon be but to give orders for the making of a pudding in the kitchen, to bid the boys hang up their caps in the hall, 
or to call the girls to their sewing. Come in, and in came Robert Moore. Moore's habitual gravity, as well as his abstemiousness, for the case of spirit decanters is never ordered up when he pays an evening visit. I recommended him to Mrs. York that she has not yet made him the subject of private animadversions with her husband. She has not yet found out that he is hampered by a secret intrigue which prevents him from marrying, or that he is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Discoveries which she made at an early date after marriage concerning most of her husband's bachelor friends, and excluded them from her board accordingly, which part of her conduct indeed might be said to have its just and sensible as well as its harsh side. Well, is it you? she says to Mr. Moore, as he comes up to her and gives his hand. What are you roving about at this time of night for? You should be at home. Can a single man be said to have a home, madam? he asks. Pooh, says Mrs. York, who despises conventional smoothness quite as much as her husband does, and practices it as little, and whose plain speaking on all occasions is carried to a point calculated, sometimes to awaken admiration, but often her alarm. Pooh, you need not talk nonsense to me. A single man can have a home if he likes. Pray, does not your sister make a home for you? Not she, joined in Mr. York. Hortense is an honest lass, but when I was Robert's age, I had five or six sisters, all as decent and proper as she is. But you see, Hester, for all that it did not hinder me from looking out for a wife. And sorely he has repented marrying me, added Mrs. York, who liked occasionally to crack a dry jest against matrimony, even though it should be at her own expense. He has repented it in sackcloth and ashes, Robert Moore, as you may well believe when you see his punishment. Here she pointed to her children. Who would burden themselves with such a set of great rough lads as those, if they could help it? It is not only bringing them into the world, though it is bad enough, but they are all to feed, to clothe, to rear, to settle in life. Young sir, when you feel tempted to marry, think of our four sons and two daughters, and look twice before you leap. I am not tempted now, at any rate. I think these are not times for marrying or giving in marriage. A lugubrious sentiment of this sort was sure to obtain Mrs. York's approbation. She nodded and groaned acquiescence, but in a minute she said, I make little account of the wisdom of a Solomon of your age. It will be upset by the first fancy that crosses you. Meantime, sit down, sir. You can talk, I suppose, as well as sitting as standing. This was her way of inviting her guest to take a chair. He had no sooner obeyed her than little Jessie jumped from her father's knee and ran into Mr. Moore's arms, which were very promptly held out to receive her. As she was lifted lightly to his knee, and he is married now, or is good. He promised that I should be his wife last summer, the first time he saw me in my new white frock and blue sash, didn't he, father? These children were not accustomed to say papa and mamma. Their mother would allow no such namby-pamby. You talk of marrying him, said she to her mother, quite indignantly. Ah, my little lassie, he promised. I'll bear witness. Make him say it over again now, Jessie. Such as he are only false loons. He is not false. He is too bonny to be false, said Jessie, looking up to her tall sweetheart with the fullest confidence of his faith. Bonny, cried Mr. York. That's the reason that he should be, and proof that he is a scoundrel. But he looks too sorrowful to be false. Here interposed a quiet voice from behind the father's chair. If he were always laughing, I should think he forgot promises soon, but Mr. Moore never laughs. Your sentimental buck is the greatest cheat of all, Rose, remarked Mr. York. He's not sentimental, said Rose. Mr. Moore turned to her with a little surprise, smiling at the same time. How do you know I am not sentimental, Rose? Because I heard a lady say you were not. Voila, qui devient intressant, exclaimed Mr. York, hitching his chair near the fire. A lady? That has quite a romantic twang. We must guess who it is. Rosie, whisper the name low to your father. Don't let him hear. Rose, don't be too forward to talk. Here interrupted Mrs. York in her usual killjoy fashion. Nor Jessie either. It becomes all children, especially girls, to be silent in the presence of their elders. Why have we tongues, then? asked Jessie pertly, while Rose only looked at her mother with an expression that seemed to say she should take that maxim in and think it over at her leisure. After two minutes' grave deliberation, she asked, And why especially girls, mother? Firstly, because I say so, and secondly, because discretion and reserve are a girl's best wisdom. My dear madam, observed Moore, what you say is excellent. It reminds me indeed of my dear sister's observations, but really it is not applicable to these little ones. Let Rose and Jessie talk to me freely, or my chief pleasure in coming here is gone. I like their prattle. It does me good. Does it not? asked Jessie. 
more good than if the rough lads came round you. You call them rough mother yourself. Yes, mignon, a thousand times more good. I have rough lads enough about me all day long, poulet. There are plenty of people, continued she, who take notice of the boys. All my uncles and aunts seem to think their nephews better than their nieces, and when gentlemen come here to dine, it is always Matthew, Mark, and Martin they are talked to. Never Rose and me. Mr. Moore is our friend, and we'll keep him. But mind, Rose, he's not so much your friend as he is mine. He is my particular acquaintance, remember that. And she held up her small hand with an admonitory gesture. Rose was quite accustomed to be admonished by that small hand. Her will daily bent itself to that of the impetuous little Jessie. She was guided, overruled by Jessie in a thousand things. On all occasions of show and pleasure, Jessie took the lead, and Rose fell quietly into the background. Whereas when the disagreeables of life, its work and privations, were in question, Rose instinctively took upon her, in addition to her own share, what she could of her sister's. Jessie had already settled it in her mind that she, when she was old enough, was to be married. Rose, she decided, must be an old maid, to live with her, to look after her children and keep her house. This state of things is not uncommon between two sisters, where one is plain and the other pretty, but in this case, if there was a difference in external appearance, Rose had the advantage. Her face was more regular featured than that of the piquant little Jessie. Jessie, however, was destined to possess, along with sprightly intelligence and vivacious feeling, the gift of fascination, the power to charm when, where, and whom she would. Rose was to have a fine, generous soul, a noble intellect profoundly cultivated, a heart as true as steel, but the manner to attract was not to be hers. "'Now, Rose, tell me the name of this lady who denied that I was sentimental,' urged Mr. Moore. Rose had no idea of tantalization, or she would have held him a while in doubt. She answered briefly, "'I can't. I don't know her name.' "'Describe her to me. What was she like? Where did you see her?' When Jessie and I went to spend the day at Winbury with Kate and Susan Pearson, who were just come home from school, there was a party at Mrs. Pearson's, and some grown-up ladies were sitting in a corner of the drawing room talking about you. Did you know none of them? Hannah and Harriet and Dora and Mary Sykes. Good. Were they abusing me, Rosie? Some of them were. They called you a misanthrope. I remember the word. I looked for it in the dictionary when I came home. It means a man-hater. What besides? Hannah Sykes said you were a solemn puppy. Better, cried Mr. York, laughing. Oh, excellent. Hannah, that's the one with the red hair. A fine girl, but half-witted. She had wit enough for me, it appears, said Moore. A solemn puppy, indeed. Well, Rose, go on. Miss Pearson said she believed there was a good deal of affectation about you, and that with your dark hair and pale face you looked to her like some sort of sentimental noodle. Again Mr. York laughed. Mrs. York even joined in this time. You see in what esteem you are held behind your back, said she. Yet I believe that Miss Pearson would like to catch you. She set her cap at you when you first came into the country, old as she is. And who contradicted her, Rosie? inquired Moore. A lady whom I don't know, because she never visits here, though I see her every Sunday at church. She sits in the pew near the pulpit. I generally look at her instead of looking at my prayer book, for she is like a picture in our dining room. That woman with the dove in her hand, at least she has eyes like it, and a nose, too, a straight nose. That makes all her face look somehow what I call clear. And you don't know her, exclaimed Jessie, in a tone of exceeding surprise. That's so like Rose. Mr. Moore, I often wonder in what sort of a world my sister lives. I am sure she does not live all her time in this. One is continually finding out that she is quite ignorant of some little matter which everybody else knows. To think of her going solemnly to church every Sunday, and looking all service time at one particular person, and ever so much as asking that person's name. She means Caroline Hellstone, the rector's niece. I remember all about it. Miss Hellstone was quite angry with Anne Pearson. She said, Robert Moore is neither affected nor sentimental. You mistake his character utterly, or rather not one of you here knows anything about it. Now, shall I tell you what she is like? I can tell what people are like, and how they are dressed better than Rose can. She is nice. She is fair. She has a pretty white slender throat. She has long curls, not stiff ones. They hang loose and soft. Their color is brown but not dark. She speaks quietly with a clear tone. She never makes a bustle in moving. She often wears this gray silk dress. She is neat all over. Her gowns and her shoes and her gloves always fit her. She is what I call a lady, and when I am tall as she is, I mean to be like her. Shall I seat you if I am? Will you really marry me? Moore stroked Jessie's hair. For a minute he seemed as if he would draw her nearer to him, but instead he put her a little farther off. Oh, you won't have me. You push me away. 
Why, Jessie, you care nothing about me. You never come to see me at the hollow. Because you don't ask me. Hereupon, Mr. Moore gave both the little girls an invitation to pay him a visit next day, promising that, as he was going to Stowbro in the morning, he would buy them each a present, of what nature he would not then declare, but they must come and see. Jessie was about to reply when one of the boys unexpectedly broke in. I know that Miss Hellstone you have all been palavering about. She's an ugly girl. I hate her. I hate all womanites. I wonder what they were made for. Martin, said his father, for Martin it was. The lad only answered by turning a cynical young face, half-arch, half-truculent towards the paternal chair. Martin, my lad, thou'd a swagger and whelp now. Thou wilt some day be an outrageous puppy, but stick to those sentiments of thine. See, I'll write down the words now in my pocketbook. The senior took out a Morocco-covered book and deliberately wrote therein. Ten years hence, Martin, if thou and I be both alive at that day, I'll remind thee of that speech. I'll say the same then. I mean always to hate women. They're such dolls. They do nothing but dress themselves finely and go swimming about to be admired. I'll never marry. I'll be a bachelor. Stick to it. Stick to it. Hester, addressing his wife, I was like him when I was his age, a regular misogamist. And behold, by the time I was three and twenty, being then a tourist in France and Italy, and the Lord knows where, I curled my hair every night before I went to bed and wore a ring in my ear and would have worn one in my nose if it had been the fashion, and all that I might make myself pleasing and charming to the ladies. Martin will do the like. Will I? Never. I've more sense. What a guy you were, father. As to dressing, I make this vow. I'll never dress more finely than as you see me at present. Mr. Moore, I'm clad in blue cloth from top to toe, and they laugh at me and call me sailor at the grammar school. I laugh louder at them and say they're all magpies and parrots, with their coats one color and their waistcoats another, and their trousers a third. I'll always wear blue cloth and nothing but blue cloth. It is beneath a human being's dignity to dress himself in party-colored garments. Ten years hence, Martin, no tailor shop will have choice of colors varied enough for thy exacting taste, no perfumer's store of essences exquisite enough for thy fastidious senses. Martin looked disdain, but vouchsafed no further reply. Meantime, Mark, who for some minutes had been rummaging amongst a pile of books on a side table, took the word. He spoke in a peculiarly slow, quiet voice, and with an expression of still irony in his face not easy to describe. Mr. Moore, said he, you think perhaps it was a compliment on Miss Caroline Hellstone's part to say you were not sentimental. I thought you appeared confused when my sister told you the words, as if you felt flattered. You turned red, just like a certain vain little lad at our school, who always thinks proper to blush when he gets a rise in the class. For your benefit, Mr. Moore, I've been looking up the word sentimental in the dictionary, and I find it to mean tincture with sentiment. On examining further, sentiment is explained to be thought, idea, notion. A sentimental man, then, is one who has thoughts, ideas, notions. An unsentimental man is one destitute of thought, idea, or notion. And Mark stopped. He did not smile. He did not look round for admiration. He had said his say and was silent. Ma foi, mon ami, observed Mr. Mortyork. Ce sont vraiment des enfants terribles. Quel est votre? Rose, who had been listening attentively to Mark's speech, replied to him. There are different kinds of thoughts, ideas, and notions, said she. Good and bad. Sentimental must refer to the bad, or Miss Hellstone must have taken it in that sense, for she was not blaming Mr. Moore. She was defending him. That's my kind little advocate, said Moore, taking Rose's hand. She was defending him, repeated Rose, as I should have done, had I been in her place, for the other ladies seemed to speak spitefully. Ladies always do speak spitefully, observed Martin. It is the nature of womanites to be spiteful. Matthew now, for the first time, opened his lips. What a fool Martin is, to always be gabbling about what he does not understand. It is my privilege, as a free man, to gobble on whatever subject I like, responded Martin. You use it, or rather abuse it, to such an extent, rejoined the elder brother, that you prove you ought to have been a slave. A slave? A slave? That to a York, and from a York. This fellow, he added, standing up at the table and pointing across it to Matthew, this fellow forgets what every cottier in Briarfield knows, that all born of our house have that arched instep under which water can flow, proof that there has not been a slave of the blood for three hundred years. Mount Banks, said Matthew. Lads, be silent, exclaimed Mr. York. Martin, you are a mischief-maker. 
there would have been no disturbance but for you. Indeed, is that correct? Did I begin or did Matthew? Had I spoken to him when he accused me of gabbling like a fool? A presumptuous fool, repeated Matthew. Here Mrs. York commenced rocking herself, rather a pretentious movement with her, as it was occasionally followed, especially when Matthew was worsted in a conflict, by a fit of hysterics. I don't see why I should bear insolence from Matthew York, or what right he has to use bad language to me, observed Martin. He has no right, my lad, but forgive your brother until seventy and seven times, said Mr. York soothingly. Always alike, and theory and practice always averse, murmured Martin as he turned to leave the room. Where art thou going, my son? asked the father. Somewhere where I shall be safe from insult, if in this house I can find any such place. Matthew laughed very insolently. Martin threw a strange look at him and trembled through all his slight lad's frame, but he restrained himself. I suppose there is no objection to my withdrawing? he inquired. No, go, my lad, but remember not to bear malice. Martin went, and Matthew sent another insolent laugh after him. Rose, lifting her fair head from Moore's shoulder against which, for a moment, it had been resting, said, as she directed a steady gaze to Matthew, "'Martin is grieved, and you are glad, but I would rather be Martin than you. I dislike your nature.' Here Mr. Moore, by way of averting, or at least escaping a scene, which a sob from Mrs. York warned him was likely to come on, rose, and putting Jessie off his knee, he kissed her and Rose, reminding them, at the same time, to be sure and come to the hollow in good time tomorrow afternoon. Then, having taken leave of his hostess, he said to Mr. York, May I speak a word with you? And was followed by him from the room. Their brief conference took place in the hall. Have you employment for a good workman? Asked Moore. A nonsense question in these times, when you know that every master has many good workmen to whom he cannot give full employment. You must oblige me by taking on this man if possible. My lad, I can take on no more hands to oblige all England. It does not signify. I must find him a place somewhere. Who is he? Mr. William Farron. I know William. A right down honest man is William. He has been out of work three months. He has a large family. We are sure they cannot live without wages. He was one of a deputation of cloth dressers who came to me this morning to complain and threaten. William did not threaten. He only asked me to give him rather more time, to make my changes more slowly. You know I cannot do that. Straightened on all sides as I am, I have nothing for it but to push on. I thought it would be idle to palaver long with them. I sent them away, after arresting a rascal amongst them, whom I hope to transport, a fellow who preaches at the chapel yonder sometimes. Not Moses Barraclow? Yes. Ah, you've arrested him. Good. Then out of a scoundrel you're going to make a martyr. You've done a wise thing. I've done a right thing. Well, the short and the long of it is, I'm determined to get fair in a place, and I reckon on you to give him one. This is cool, however, exclaimed Mr. York. What right have you to reckon on me to provide for your dismissed workmen? What do I know about your Farrens and your Williams? I've heard he's an honest man, but am I to support all the honest men in Yorkshire? You may say that be no great charge to undertake, but great or little, I'll none of it. Come, Mr. York, what can you find for him to do? I find. You'll make me use language I'm not accustomed to use. I wish you would go home. Here's the door. Set off. Moore sat down on one of the hall chairs. You can't give him work in your mill? Good. But you have land. Find him some occupation on your land, Mr. York. Bob, I thought you cared nothing about our Lord I de Pessons. I don't understand this change. I do. The fellow spoke to me nothing but truth and sense. I answered him just as roughly as I did the rest, who jabbered mere gibberish. I couldn't make distinctions there and then. His appearance told what he had gone through lately clearer than his words, but where is the use of explaining? Let him have work. Let him have it yourself. If you are so very much in earnest, strain a point. If there was a point left in my affairs to strain, I would strain it till it cracked again, but I received letters this morning which show me pretty clearly where I stand, and it is not far off the end of the plank. My foreign market at any rate is gorged. If there is no change, if there dawns no prospect of peace, if the orders in council are not at least suspended so as to open our way in the west, I do not know where I am to turn. I see no more light than if I were sealed in a rock, so that for me to pretend to offer a man a livelihood would be to do a dishonest thing. Come, let us take a turn on the front. It is a starlight night, said Mr. York. 
They passed out, closing the front door after them, and side by side paced the frost-white pavement to and fro. Settle about Theron at once, urged Mr. Moore. You have large fruit gardens at York Mills. He is a good gardener. Give him work there. Well, so be it. I'll send for him tomorrow and we'll see. And now, my lad, you're concerned about the conditions of your affairs? Yes, a second failure, which I may delay, but which, at this moment, I see no way finally to avert, would blight the name of more completely, and you are aware I had fine intentions of paying off every debt and re-establishing the old firm on its former basis. You want capital, that's all you want. Yes, but you might as well say that breath is all a dead man wants to live. I know. I know capital is not to be had for the asking, and if you were a married man and had a family like me, I should think your case pretty nigh desperate, but the young and unencumbered have chances peculiar to themselves. I hear gossip now and then about your being on the eve of marriage with this, this, and that, but I suppose it is none of it true? You may well suppose that. I think I am not in a position to be dreaming of marriage. Marriage, I cannot bear the word. It sounds so silly and utopian. I have settled it decidedly that marriage and love are superfluities, intended only for the rich who live at ease and have no need to take thought for the morrow or desperations, the last and reckless joy of the deeply wretched, who never hope to rise out of the slough of their utter poverty. I should not think so if I were circumstanced as you are. I should think I could very likely get a wife with a few thousands who would suit both me and my affairs. I wonder where. Would you try if you had a chance? I don't know. It depends on... In short, it depends on many things. Would you take an old woman? I'd rather break stones on the road. So would I. Would you take an ugly one? Bah! I hate ugliness and delight in beauty. My eyes and heart, York, take pleasure in a sweet, young, fair face, as they are repelled by a grim, rugged, meager one. Soft, delicate lines and hues, please. Harsh ones prejudice me. I won't have an ugly wife. Not if she were rich. Not if she were dressed in gems. I could not love. I could not fancy. I could not endure her. My taste must have satisfaction, or disgust would break out in deptism, or worse, freeze to utter iciness. What? Bob, if you married an honest, good-natured, and wealthy lass, though a little hard-favored, couldn't you put up with the high cheekbones, the rather wide mouth, and reddish hair? I'll never try, I tell you. Grace, at least, I will have. And youth and symmetry, yes, and what I call beauty. And poverty, and a nursery full of bairns you can neither clothe nor feed, and very soon an anxious, faded mother, and then bankruptcy, discredit, a lifelong struggle. Let me alone, York. If you are romantic, Robert, and especially if you are already in love, it is of no use talking. I am not romantic. I am struck of romance as bare as the white tenors in that field are of cloth. Always use such figures of speech, lad. I can understand them. And there is no love affair to disturb your judgment? I thought I had said enough on that subject before. Love for me? Stuff. Well, then, if you are sound both in heart and head, there is no reason why you should not profit by a good chance if it offers. Therefore, wait and see. You are quite oracular, York. I think I am a bit in that line. I promise you not, and I advise you not, but I bid you keep your heart up and be guided by circumstances. My namesake, the physician's almanac, could not speak more guardedly. In the meantime, I care not about you, Robert Moore. You are nothing akin to me or mine, and whether you lose or find a fortune, it makes no difference to me. Go home now. It is stricken ten. Miss Hortense will be wondering where you are. Chapter 10. Old Maids Time wore on, and spring matured. The surface of England began to look pleasant. Her fields grew green, her hills fresh, her gardens blooming, but at heart she was no better. Still her poor were wretched, still their employers were harassed. Commerce, in some of its branches, seemed threatened with paralysis, for the war continued. England's blood was shed and her wealth lavished. All, it seemed, to attain most inadequate ends. Some tidings there were indeed occasionally of successes in the peninsula, but these came in slowly. Long intervals occurred between, in which no note was heard but the insolent self-felicitations of Bonaparte on his continued triumphs. Those who suffered from the results of the war felt this tedious and, as they thought, hopeless struggle against what their fears or their interests taught them to regard as an invincible power most insufferable. They demanded peace on any terms. 
Men like York and Moore, and there were thousands whom the war placed where it placed them, shuddering on the verge of bankruptcy, insisted on peace with the energy of desperation. They held meetings, they held speeches, they got up petitions to extort the spoon. On what terms it was made, they cared not. All men, taken singly, are more or less selfish, and taken in bodies, they are intensely so. The British merchant is no exception to this rule. The mercantile class is illustrated strikingly. These classes certainly think too exclusively of making money. They are too oblivious of every national consideration but that of extending England's, that is, their own, commerce. Chivalrous feelings, disinterestedness, pride and honor is too dead in their hearts. A land ruled by them alone would too often make ignominious submission, not at all from the motives Christ teaches, but rather from those mammon instills. During the late war, the tradesmen of England would have endured buffets from the French on the right cheek and on the left. Their cloak they would have given to Napoleon, and then have politely offered him their coat also. Nor would they have withheld their waistcoat if urged. They would have prayed permission only to retain their one other garment for the sake of the purse in its pocket. Not one spark of spirit, not one symptom of resistance, would they have shown till the hand of the Corsican bandit had grasped that beloved purse. Then, perhaps transfigured at once into British bulldogs, they would have sprung at the robber's throat, and there they would have fastened, and there hung, inveterate, insatiable, till the treasure had been restored. Tradesmen, when they speak against war, always profess to hate it because it is a bloody and barbarous proceeding. You would think, to hear them talk, that they are peculiarly civilized, especially gentle, and kindly of disposition to their fellow men. This is not the case. Many of them are extremely narrow and cold-hearted, having no good feeling for any class but their own, are distant, even hostile to all others, call them useless, seem to question their right to exist, seem to grudge them the very air they breathe, and to think the circumstance of their eating, drinking, and living in decent houses quite unjustifiable. They do not know what others do in the way of helping, pleasing, or teaching their race. They will not trouble themselves to inquire. Whoever is not in trade is accused of eating the bread of idleness and passing a useless existence. Long may it be ere England really becomes a nation of shopkeepers. We have already said that Moore was no self-sacrificing patriot, and we have also explained what circumstances rendered him specially prone to confine his attention and efforts to the furtherance of his individual interest. Accordingly, when he felt himself urged a second time to the brink of ruin, none struggled harder than he against the influences which would have thrust him over. What he could do towards stirring agitation in the North against the war he did, and he instigated others whose money and connections gave them more power than he possessed. Sometimes, by flashes, he felt there was little reason in the demands his party made on government. When he heard of all Europe threatened by Bonaparte and all Europe arming to resist him, when he saw Russia menaced and beheld Russia rising, incensed and stern to defend her frozen soil, her wild provinces of serfs, her dark native despotism, from the tread, the yoke, the tyranny of a foreign victor, he knew that England, a free realm, could not then depute her sons to make concessions in purpose terms to the unjust, grasping French leader. When news came from time to time of the movements of that man, then representing England in the peninsula, of his advance from success to success, that advance so deliberate but so unswerving, so circumspect but so certain, so unhasting but so unresting, when he read Lord Wellington's own dispatches in the columns of the newspapers, documents written by modesty to the dictation of truth, more confessed at heart that a power was with the troops of Britain, of that vigilant, enduring, genuine, unostentatious sort, which must win victory to the side it led in the end. In the end. But that end, he thought, was yet far off. And meantime he, more, as an individual, would be crushed, his hopes ground to dust. It was himself he had to care for, his hopes he had to pursue, and he would fulfill his destiny. He fulfilled it so vigorously that ere long he came to a decisive rupture with his old Tory friend, the rector. They quarreled at a public meeting and afterwards exchanged some pungent letters in the newspapers. Mr. Hellstone denounced Moore as a Jacobin, ceased to see him, would not even speak to him when they met. He intimated also to his niece very distinctly that her communications with Hollow's Cottage must for the present cease. She must give up taking French lessons. The language, he observed, was a bad and frivolous one at the best, and most of the works it boasted were bad and frivolous, highly injurious to their tendency to weak female minds. He wondered, he remarked parenthetically, what noodle first made it to the fashion to teach women French. Nothing was more improper for them. 
It was like feeding a rickety child on chalk and water gruel. Caroline must give it up and give up her cousins, too. They were dangerous people. Mr. Hellstone quite expected opposition to this order. He expected tears. Seldom did he trouble himself about Caroline's movements, but a vague idea possessed him that she was fond of going to Hollow's Cottage. Also, he suspected that she liked Robert Moore's occasional presence at the rectory. The Cossack had perceived that whereas if Malone stepped in of an evening to make himself sociable and charming by pinching the ears of an aged black cat, which usually shared with Miss Hellstone's feet the accommodation of her footstool, or by borrowing a fowling piece and banging away at a tool shed door in the garden, while enough of daylight remained to show that conspicuous mark, keeping the passage and sitting room doors meantime uncomfortably open for the convenience of running in and out to announce his failures and successes with noisy brusquerie, he had observed that under such entertaining circumstances Caroline had a trick of disappearing, tripping noiselessly upstairs, and remaining invisible till called down to supper. On the other hand, when Robert Moore was the guest, though he elicited no vivacities from the cat, did nothing to it, indeed, beyond occasionally coaxing it from the stool to his knee, and there letting it purr, climb to his shoulder, and rub its head against his cheek, though there was no ear-splitting cracking off of firearms, no diffusion of sulfurous gunpowder perfume, no noise, no boasting during his stay, but still Caroline sat in the room and seemed to find wondrous content in the stitching of Jew-basket pincushions and the knitting of missionary-basket socks. She was very quiet, and Robert paid her little attention, scarcely ever addressing his discourse to her. But Mr. Hellstone, not being one of those elderly gentlemen who are easily blinded, on the contrary, finding himself on all occasions extremely wide awake, had watched them when they bade each other good night. He had just seen their eyes meet once, only once. Some natures would have taken pleasure in the glance, then surprised, because there was no harm and some delight in it. It was by no means a glance of mutual intelligence, for mutual love secrets existed not between them. There was nothing then of craft and concealment to offend. Only Mr. Moore's eyes, looking into Caroline's, felt they were clear and gentle, and Caroline's eyes, encountering Mr. Moore's, confessed they were manly and searching. Each acknowledged the charm in his or her own way. Moore smiled slightly, and Caroline colored as slightly. Mr. Hellstone could, on the spot, have rated them both. They annoyed him. Why? Impossible to say. If you had asked him what Moore merited at that moment, he would have said, a horsewhip. If you had inquired into Caroline's desserts, he would have adjudged her a box on the ear. If you had further demanded the reason of such chastisements, he would have stormed against flirtation and lovemaking, and vowed he would have no such folly going on under his roof. These private considerations, combined with political reasons, fixed his resolution of separating the cousins. He announced his will to Caroline one evening as she was sitting at work near the drawing-room window. Her face was turned towards him, and the light fell full upon it. It had struck him a few minutes before that she was looking paler and quieter than she used to look. It had not escaped him either that Robert Moore's name had never, for some three weeks past, dropped from her lips, nor during the same space of time had that personage made his appearance at the rectory. Some suspicion of clandestine meetings haunted his mind. Having but an indifferent opinion of women, he always suspected them. He thought they needed constant watching. It was in a tone dryly significant he desired her to cease her daily visits to the hollow. He expected a start, a look of deprecation. The start he saw, but it was a very slight one. No look whatever was directed to him. "'Do you hear me?' he asked. "'Yes, uncle.' Of course you mean to attend to what I say. Yes, certainly. And there must be no letter scribbling to your cousin Hortense. No intercourse whatever. I do not approve of the principles of the family. Because it was now become pain to her to go to Hollow's cottage. Nothing met her there but disappointment. Hope and love had quitted that little tenement, for Robert seemed to have deserted its precincts. Whenever she asked after him, which she very seldom did, since the mere utterance of his name made her face grow hot, the answer was he was from home, or he was quite taken up with business. They are Jacobinical. Very well, said Caroline quietly. She acquiesced then. There was no vexed flushing of the face, no gathering tears. The shadowy thoughtfulness which had covered her features ere Mr. Hellstone spoke remained undisturbed. She was obedient. Yes, perfectly, because the mandate coincided with her own previous judgment. Hortense feared he was killing himself by application. He scarcely ever took a meal in the house. He lived in the counting house. At church only, Caroline had the chance of seeing him, and there she rarely looked at him. It was both too much pain and too much pleasure to look. It excited too much emotion, and that it was all wasted emotion she had learned well to comprehend. 
Once, on a dark, wet Sunday, when there were a few people at church, and when especially certain ladies were absent, of whose observant faculties and tomahawk tongues Caroline stood in awe, she had allowed her eye to seek Robert's pew, and to rest a while on his occupant. He was there alone. Hortense had been kept at home by prudent considerations relative to the rain and a new spring chapeau. During the sermon, he sat with folded arms and eyes cast down, looking very sad and abstracted. When depressed, the very hue of his face seemed more dusk than when he smiled, and today cheek and forehead wore their most tintless and sober olive. By instinct, Caroline knew, as she examined that cloudy countenance, that his thoughts were running in no familiar or kindly channel, that they were far away, not merely from her, but from all which she could comprehend, or in which she could sympathize. Nothing that they had ever talked of together was now in his mind. He was wrapped from her by interests and responsibilities in which it was deemed such as she could have no part. Caroline meditated in her own way on the subject, speculated on his feelings, on his life, on his fears, on his fate, mused over the mystery of business, trying to comprehend more about it than had ever been told to her. To understand his perplexities, liabilities, duties, exactions, endeavor to realize the state of mind of a man of business, to enter into it, feel what he would say, aspire to what he would aspire. Her earnest wish was to see things as they were, and not to be romantic. By dint of effort, she contrived to get a glimpse of the light of truth here and there, and hoped that scant ray might suffice to guide her. Different indeed, she concluded, is Robert's mental condition to mine. I think only of him. He has no room, no leisure to think of me. The feeling called love is, and has been for two years, the predominant emotion of my heart. Always there, always awake, always astir. Quite other feelings absorb his reflections and govern his faculties. He is rising now, going to leave the church, for service is over. Will he turn his head towards this pew? No, not once. He has not one look for me. That is hard. A kind glance would have made me happy till tomorrow. I have not got it. He would not give it. He is gone. Strange that grief should now almost choke me, because another human being's eye has failed to greet mine. That Sunday evening, Mr. Malone coming, as usual, to pass it with his rector, Caroline withdrew after tea to her chamber. Fanny, knowing her habits, had lit her a cheerful little fire, as the weather was so gusty and chill. Closeted there, silent and solitary, what could she do but think? She noiselessly paced to and fro the carpeted floor, her head drooped, her hands folded. It was irksome to sit. The current of reflection ran rapidly through her mind. Tonight, she was mutely excited. Mute was the room. Mute was the house. The double door of the study muffled the voices of the gentlemen. The servants were quiet in the kitchen, engaged with the books their young mistress had lent them. Books which she had told them were fit for Sunday reading. And she herself had another of the same sort open on the table, but she could not read it. Its theology was incomprehensible to her, and her own mind was too busy, teeming, wandering, to listen to the language of another mind. Then, too, her imagination was full of pictures. Images of Moore, scenes where he and she had been together, winter fireside sketches, a glowing landscape of a hot summer afternoon passed with him in the bosom of Nunnally Wood, divine vignettes of mild spring or mellow autumn moments. When she had sat at his side in Hollow's Copse, listening to the call of the May Cuckoo, or sharing the September treasure of nuts and ripe blackberries, a wild dessert which it was her morning's pleasure to collect in a little basket and cover with green leaves and fresh blossoms, and her afternoon's delight to administer to more, berry by berry and nut by nut, like a bird feeding its fledgling. Robert's features and form were with her, and the sound of his voice was quite distinct in her ear. His few caresses seemed renewed, but these joys, being hollow, were, ere long, crushed in. The pictures faded, the voice failed, the visionary clasp melted chill from her head, and where the warm seal of lips had made impress on her forehead, it felt now as if a sleety raindrop had fallen. She returned from an enchanted region to the real world. For Nunnally Wood in June, she saw her narrow chamber. For the songs of birds and alleys, she heard the rain on her casement. For the sigh of the south wind came the sob of the mournful east. And for Moore's manly companionship, she had the thin illusion of her own dim shadow on the wall. Turning from the pale phantom which reflected herself in its outline, and her reverie in the drooped attitude of its dim head and colorless tresses, she sat down. Inaction would suit the frame of mind into which she was now declining. She said to herself, I have to live, perhaps, till seventy years. As far as I know, I have good health. Half a century of existence may lie before me. How am I to occupy it? What am I to do to fill the interval of time which spreads between me and the grave? She reflected. 
I shall not be married, it appears, she continued. I suppose, as Roberts does not care for me, I shall never have a husband to love, nor little children to take care of. Till lately, I had reckoned securely on the duties and affections of wife and mother to occupy my existence. I considered somehow, as a matter of course, that I was growing up to the ordinary destiny, and never troubled myself to seek any other. But now I perceive plainly I may have been mistaken. Probably I shall be an old maid. I shall live to see Robert married to someone else, some rich lady. I shall never marry. What was I created for, I wonder? Where is my place in the world? She mused again. Ah, I see, she pursued presently. That is the question. And then they requite them by praise. They call them devoted and virtuous. Is this enough? Is it to live? Is there not a terrible hollowness, mockery, want, craving, and that existence which is given away to others for want of something of your own to bestow it on? I suspect there is. Does virtue lie in abnegation of self? I do not believe it. Undue humility makes tyranny. Weak concession creates selfishness. The Romish religion, especially, teaches renunciation of self, submission to others, and nowhere are found so many grasping tyrants as in the ranks of the Romish priesthood. Each human being has his share of rights. I suspect it would conduce to the happiness and welfare of all if each knew his allotment, and held to it as tenaciously as the martyr to his creed. Queer thoughts these that surge in my mind. Are they right thoughts? I am not certain. Well, life is short at the best. Seventy years, they say, pass like a vapor, like a dream when one awaketh and every path trod by human feet terminates in one born, the grave, the little chink in the surface of this great globe, which most old maids are puzzled to solve. Other people solve it for them by saying, your place is to do good to others, to be helpful whenever help is wanted. That is right in some measure, and a very convenient doctrine for the people who hold it, but I perceive that certain sets of human beings are very apt to maintain that other sets should give up their lives to them and their service. The furrow where the mighty husbandman with the scythe deposits the seed he has shaken from the ripe stem, and there it falls, decays, and thence it springs again when the world has rolled round a few more times. So much for the body. The soul, meantime, wings its long flight upwards, holds its wings on the brink of the sea of fire and glass, and gazing down through the burning clearness, finds there mirrored the vision of the Christian's triple godhead, the sovereign father, the mediating son, the creator spirit. Such words, at least, have been chosen to express what is inexpressible, to describe what baffles description. The soul's real hereafter, who shall guess? Her fire was decayed to its last cinder. Malone had departed, and now the study bell rang for prayers. The next day, Caroline had to spend altogether alone, her uncle being gone to dine with his friend, Dr. Boltby, vicar of Winbury. The whole time, she was talking inwardly in the same strain, looking forwards, asking what she was to do with life. Fanny, as she passed in and out of the room occasionally, intent on housemaid errands, perceived that her young mistress sat very still. She was always in the same place, always bent industriously over a piece of work. She did not lift her head to speak to Fanny, as her custom was, and when the latter remarked that the day was fine and she ought to take a walk, she only said, it is cold. You are very diligent in that sewing, Miss Caroline, continued the girl, approaching her little table. I am tired of it, Fanny. Then why do you go on with it? Put it down, read, or do something to amuse you. It is solitary in this house, Fanny, don't you think so? I don't find it so, Miss. Me and Eliza are company for one another, but you are quite too still. You should visit more. Now, be persuaded. Go upstairs and dress yourself smart, and go and take tea, in a friendly way, with Miss Mann or Miss Ainsley. I am certain either of those ladies would be delighted to see you. But their houses are dismal. They are both old maids. I am certain old maids are a very unhappy race. Not they, miss. They can't be unhappy. They take such good care of themselves. They are all selfish. Miss Ainley is not selfish, Fanny. She is always doing good. How devotedly kind she was to her stepmother as long as the old lady lived. And now, when she is quite alone in the world, without brother or sister or anyone to care for her, how charitable she is to the poor, as far as her means permit. Still, nobody thinks much of her or has pleasure in going to see her, and how gentlemen always sneer at her. They shouldn't, miss. I believe she is a good woman, but gentlemen think only of ladies' looks. I'll go and see her, exclaimed Caroline, starting up. And if she asks me to stay to tea, I'll stay. How wrong it is to neglect people because they are not pretty and young and merry. And I will certainly call to see Miss Mann, too. She may not be amiable, but what has made her unamiable? What has life been to her? Fanny helped Miss Hellstone to put away her work and afterwards assisted her to dress. 
You'll not be an old maid, Miss Caroline, she said, as she tied to the sash of her brown silk frock, having previously smoothed her soft full and shining curls. There are no signs of an old maid about you. Caroline looked at the little mirror before her, and she thought there were some signs. She could see that she was altered within the last month, that the hues of her complexion were paler, her eyes changed. A wan shade seemed to circle them. Her countenance was dejected. She was not, in short, so pretty or so fresh as she used to be. She distantly hinted this to Fanny, from whom she got no direct answer, only remarked that people did vary in their looks, but at her age, a little falling away signified nothing. She would soon come round again, and be plumper and rosier than ever. Having given this assurance, Fanny showed singular zeal in wrapping her up in warm shawls and handkerchiefs, till Caroline, nearly smothered with the weight, was fain to resist further additions. She paid her visits, first to Miss Mann, for this was the most difficult point. Miss Mann was certainly not quite a lovable person. Till now, Caroline had always unhesitatingly declared she disliked her, and more than once she had joined her cousin Robert in laughing at some of her peculiarities. Moore was not habitually given to sarcasm, especially on anything humbler or weaker than himself, but he had once or twice happened to be in the room when Miss Mann had made a call on his sister, and after listening to her conversation and viewing her features for a time, he had gone out into the garden where his little cousin was tending some of his favorite flowers, and while standing near and watching her, he had amused himself with comparing fair youth, delicate and attractive, with shriveled eld, livid and loveless, and ingestingly repeating to a smiling girl the vinegar discourse of a cankered old maid. Once on such an occasion, Caroline had said to him, looking up from the luxuriant creeper she was binding to its frame, "'Ah, Robert, you do not like old maids. I, too, should come under the lash of your sarcasm if I were an old maid.' "'You an old maid?' he had replied. "'A piquant notion suggested by lips of that tint and form. "'I can fancy you, though, at forty, quietly dressed, pale and sunk, "'but still with that straight nose, white forehead, and those soft eyes. "'I suppose, too, you will keep your voice, "'which is another timber than that hard or deep organ of Miss Mann's. "'Courage, Carrie. Even at fifty you will not be repulsive.' "'Miss Mann did not make herself, or tune her voice, Robert. "'Nature made her in the mood in which she makes her briars and thorns, "'whereas for the creation of some women she reserves the May morning hours "'when with light and dew she woos the primrose from the turf "'and the lily from the wood moss. "'Ushered into Miss Mann's little parlor, "'Caroline found her, as she always found her, "'surrounded by perfect neatness, cleanliness, and comfort. "'After all, is it not a virtue in old maids "'that solitude rarely makes them negligent or disorderly? "'No dust on her polished furniture, none on her carpet, "'fresh flowers in the vase on her table, "'a bright fire in the grate. "'She herself sat primly and somewhat grimly tidy "'in a cushioned rocking chair her hands busied with some knitting. This was her favorite work, as it required the least exertion. She scarcely rose as Caroline entered. To avoid excitement was one of Miss Mann's aims in life. She had been composing herself ever since she came down in the morning, and had just attained a certain lethargic state of tranquility when the visitor's knock at the door startled her and undid her day's work. She was scarcely pleased, therefore, to see Miss Hellstone. She received her with reserve, bade her be seated with austerity, and when she got her placed opposite, she fixed her with her eye. This was no ordinary doom, to be fixed with Miss Mann's eye. Robert Moore had undergone it once, and had never forgotten the circumstance. He considered it quite equal to anything Medusa could do. He professed to doubt whether, since that infliction, his flesh had been quite what it was before, whether there was not something stony in its texture. The gaze had had such an effect on him as to drive him promptly from the apartment and house. It had even sent him straightway up to the rectory, where he had appeared in Caroline's presence with a very queer face, and amazed her by demanding a cousinly salute on the spot to rectify a damage that had been done him. Certainly Miss Mann had a formidable eye for one of the softer sex. It was prominent and showed a great deal of the white, and looked as steadily and unwinkingly at you as if it were a steel ball soldered in her head. And when, while looking, she began to talk in an indescribably dry, monotonous tone, a tone without vibration or inflection, you felt as if a graven image of some bad spirit were addressing you. But it was all a figment of fancy, a matter of surface. Miss Mann's goblin grimness scarcely went deeper than the angel sweetness of hundreds of beauties. She was a perfectly honest, conscientious woman, who had performed duties in her day, from whose severe anguish many a human parry, for those who had repaid her only by ingratitude, and now her main, almost her sole, fault was that she was censorious. Censorious she certainly was. Caroline had not sat five minutes ere her hostess, still keeping her under the spell of that dread and gorgon gaze, began flaying alive certain of the families in the neighborhood. 
She went to work at this business in a singularly cool, deliberate manner, like some surgeon practicing with a scalpel on a lifeless subject. She made few distinctions. She allowed scarcely anyone to be good. She dissected impartially almost all her acquaintance. If her auditress ventured now and then to put in a palliative word, she set it aside with a certain disdain. Still, though thus pitiless in moral anatomy, she was no scandalmonger. She never disseminated really malignant or dangerous reports. It was not her heart so much as her temper that was wrong. Gazelle-eyed, silken-tressed, and silver-tongued would have shrunk appalled. She had passed alone through protracted scenes of suffering, exercised rigid self-denial, made large sacrifices of time, money, health, and moved thereby to regret diverse unjust judgments she had more than once passed on the crabbed old maid. She began to talk to her softly, not in sympathizing words, but with a sympathizing voice. The loneliness of her condition struck her visitor in a new light, as did also the character of her ugliness, a bloodless pallor of complexion and deeply worn lines of feature. The girl pitied the solitary and afflicted woman. Her looks told what she felt. Caroline made this discovery for the first time today. A sweet countenance is never so sweet as when the moved heart animates it with compassionate tenderness. Miss Mann, seeing such a countenance raised to her, was touched in her turn. She acknowledged her sense of the interest thus unexpectedly shown in her, who usually met with only coldness and ridicule, by replying to her candidly. Communicative on her own affairs, she usually was not, because no one cared to listen to her. But today she became so, and her confidant shed tears as she heard her speak, for she told of cruel, slow-wasting, obstinate sufferings. Well might she be corpse-like, well might she look grim and never smile, well might she wish to avoid excitement, to gain and retain composure. Caroline, when she knew all, acknowledged that Miss Mann was rather to be admired for fortitude than blamed for moroseness. Reader, when you behold an aspect for whose constant gloom and frown you cannot account, whose unvarying cloud exasperates you by its apparent causelessness, be sure that there is a canker somewhere, and a canker not the less deeply corroding because concealed. Miss Mann felt that she was understood partly, and wished to be understood further, for, however old, plain, humble, desolate, afflicted we may be, so long as our hearts preserve the feeblest spark of life, they preserve also, shivering near that pale ember, a starved, ghostly longing for appreciation and affection. To this extenuated specter, perhaps, a crumb is not thrown once a year, but when a hungered and a thirst to famine, when all humanity has forgotten the dying tenant of a decaying house, divine mercy remembers the mourner, and a shower of manna falls for lips that earthly nutriment is to pass no more. Biblical promises, heard first in health, but then unheeded, come whispering to the couch of sickness, it is felt that a pitying God watches what all mankind have forsaken. The tender compassion of Jesus is recalled and relied on. The faded eye, gazing beyond time, sees a home, a friend, a refuge in eternity. Miss Mann, drawn on by the still attention of her listener, proceeded to allude to circumstances in her past life. She spoke like one who tells the truth, simply and with a certain reserve. She did not boast, nor did she exaggerate. Caroline found that the old maid had been a most devoted daughter and sister, an unwearied watcher by lingering deathbeds, that to prolonged and unrelaxed in attendance on the sick the malady that now poisoned her own life owed its origin, that to one wretched relative she had been a support and succor in the depths of self-earned degradation, and that it was still her hand which kept him from utter destitution. Miss Hellstone stayed the whole evening, omitting to pay her other intended visit, and when she left Miss Mann, it was with the determination to try in future to excuse her faults, never again to make light of her peculiarities or to laugh at her plainness, and above all things not to neglect her, but to come once a week and to offer her, from one human heart at least, the homage of affection and respect." she felt she could now sincerely give her a small tribute of each feeling. Caroline, on her return, told Fanny she was very glad she had gone out, as she felt much better for the visit. The next day she failed not to seek Miss Ainsley. This lady was in narrow circumstances than Miss Mann, and her dwelling was more humble. It was, however, if possible, yet more exquisitely clean, though the decayed gentlewoman could not afford to keep a servant, but waited on herself, and had only the occasional assistance of a little girl who lived in a cottage near. Not only was Miss Ainsley poorer, but she was even plainer than the other old maid. In her first youth, she must have been ugly. Now, at the age of fifty, she was very ugly. At first sight, all but peculiarly well-disciplined minds were apt to turn from her with annoyance, to conceive against her a prejudice, simply on the ground of her unattractive look. Then she was prim in dress and manner. She looked, spoke, and moved the complete old maid. 
Her welcome to Caroline was formal, even in its kindness, for it was kind, but Miss Hellstone excused this. She knew something of the benevolence of the heart which beat under that starched kerchief. All the neighborhood, at least all the female neighborhood, knew something of it. No one spoke against Miss Ainsley except lively young gentlemen and inconsiderate old ones who declared her hideous. Caroline was soon at home in that tiny parlor. A kind hand took from her her shawl and bonnet and installed her in the most comfortable seat near the fire. The young and the antiquated woman were presently deep in kindly conversation, and soon Caroline became aware of the power a most serene, unselfish, and benignant mind could exercise over those to whom it was developed. She talked never of herself, always of others. Their faults she passed over. Her theme was their wants, which she sought to supply. Their sufferings, which she longed to alleviate. She was religious, a professor of religion, what some would call a saint, and she referred to religion often in sanctioned phrase, in phrase which those who possess a perception of the ridiculous without owning the power of exactly testing and truly judging character would certainly have esteemed a proper subject for satire, a matter for mimicry and laughter. They would have been hugely mistaken for their pains. Sincerity is never ludicrous. It is always respectable. Whether truth, be it religious or moral truth, speak eloquently and in well-chosen language or not, its voice should be heard with reverence. Let those who cannot nicely and with certainty discern the difference between the tones of hypocrisy and those of sincerity never presume to laugh at all, lest they should have the miserable misfortune to laugh in the wrong place and commit impiety when they think they are achieving wit. Not from Miss Ainsley's own lips did Caroline hear of her good works, but she knew much of them nevertheless. Her beneficence was the familiar topic of the poor in Briarfield. They were not works of almsgiving. The old maid was too poor to give much, though she straightened herself to privation that she might contribute her might when needful. They were the works of a sister of charity, far more difficult to perform than those of the Lady Bountiful. She would watch by any sick bed. She seemed to fear no disease. She would nurse the poorest, which none else would nurse. She was serene, humble, kind, and equable through everything. For this goodness, she got but little reward in this life. Many of the poor became so accustomed to her services that they hardly thanked her for them. The rich heard them mentioned with wonder, but were silent from a sense of shame at the difference between her sacrifices and their own. Many ladies, however, respected her deeply. They could not help it. One gentleman, one only, gave her his friendship and perfect confidence. This was Mr. Hall, the vicar of Nunnally. He said, and said truly, that her life came nearer the life of Christ than that of any other human being he had ever met with. You must not think, reader, that in sketching Miss Ainsley's character I depict a figment of imagination. No, we seek the originals of such portraits in real life only. Miss Hellstone studied well the mind and heart now revealed to her. She found no high intellect to admire, the old maid was merely sensible, but she discovered so much goodness, so much usefulness, so much mildness, patience, truth, that she bent her own mind before Miss Ainsley's in reverence. What was her love of nature? What was her sense of beauty? What were her more varied and fervent emotions? What was her deeper power of thought? What her wider capacity to comprehend compared to the practical elegance of this good woman? Momently they seemed only beautiful forms of selfish delight. Mentally she trod them underfoot. It is true she still felt with pain that the life which made Miss Ainsley's happy could not make her happy. Pure and active as it was, in her heart she deemed it deeply dreary because it was so loveless, to her ideas so forlorn. Yet, doubtless, she reflected, it needed only habit to make it practicable and agreeable to anyone. It was despicable, she felt, to pine sentimentally, to cherish secret griefs, vain memories, to be inert, to waste youth in aching languor, to grow old doing nothing. I will bestir myself, was her resolution, and try to be wise if I cannot be good. She proceeded to make inquiry of Miss Ainsley if she could help her in anything. Miss Ainsley, glad of an assistant, told her that she could, and indicated some poor families in Briarfield that it was desirable she should visit, giving her likewise, at her further request, some work to do for certain poor women who had many children, and who were unskilled in using the needle for themselves. Caroline went home, laid her plans, and took a resolve not to swerve from them. She allotted a certain portion of her time for her various studies, and a certain portion for doing anything Miss Ainsley might direct her to do. The remainder was to be spent in exercise. Not a moment was to be left for the indulgence of such fevered thoughts as had poisoned last Sunday evening. To do her justice, she executed her plans conscientiously, perseveringly. It was very hard work at first. It was even hard work to the end. 
but it helped her to stem and keep down anguish. It forced her to be employed. It forbade her to brood, and gleams of satisfaction checkered her gray life here and there when she found she had done good, imparted pleasure, or allayed suffering. Yet I must speak truth. These efforts brought her neither health of body nor continued peace of mind. With them all she wasted, grew more joyless and more wan. With them all her memory kept harping on the name of Robert Moore. An elegy over the past still rung constantly in her ear. A funereal inward cry haunted and harassed her. The heaviness of a broken spirit and of pining and palsying faculties settled slow on her buoyant youth. Winter seemed conquering her spring. The mind's soil and its treasures were freezing gradually to barren stagnation. Okay, time for our little intermission. Um, I'm here to remind you how I'm able to make this podcast happen. Chapter 11, Fieldhead. Yet Caroline refused tamely to succumb. She had native strength in her girl's heart, and she used it. Men and women never struggle so hard as when they struggle alone, without witness, counselor, or confidant, unencouraged, unadvised, and unpitied. Miss Hellstone was in this position. Her sufferings were her only spur, and being very real and sharp, they roused her spirit keenly. Bent on victory over a mortal pain, she did her best to quell it. Never had she been so busy, so studious, and above all, so active. She took walks in all weathers, long walks in solitary directions. Day by day, she came back in the evening, pale and wearied-looking, yet seemingly not fatigued. For still, as soon as she had thrown off her bonnet and shawl, she would, instead of resting, begin to pace her apartment. Sometimes she would not sit down till she was literally faint. She said she did this to tire herself well, that she might sleep soundly at night. But if that was her aim, it was unattained, for at night, when others slumbered, she was tossing on her pillow or sitting at the foot of her couch in the darkness, forgetful, apparently, of the necessity of seeking repose. Often, unhappy girl, she was crying, crying in a sort of intolerable despair, which, when it rushed over her, smote down her strength and reduced her to childlike helplessness. When thus prostrate, temptations besieged her. Weak suggestions whispered in her weary heart to write to Robert and say that she was unhappy because she was forbidden to see him and her taunts, and that she feared he would withdraw his friendship, not love, from her and forget her entirely, and begging him to remember her, and sometimes to write to her. One or two such letters she actually indicted, but she never sent them. Shame and good sense forbade. At last the life she led reached the point when it seemed she could bear it no longer, that she must seek and find a change somehow, or her heart and head would fail under the pressure which strained them. She longed to leave Briarfield, to go to some very distant place. She longed for something else, the deep, secret, anxious yearning to discover and know her mother strengthened daily, but with the desire was coupled a doubt, a dread. If she knew her, could she love her? There was cause for hesitation, for apprehension on this point. Never in her life had she heard that mother praised. Whoever mentioned her mentioned her coolly. Her uncle seemed to regard his sister-in-law with a sort of tacit antipathy. An old servant, who had lived with Mrs. James Halstone for a short time after her marriage, whenever she referred to her former mistress, spoke with chilling reserve. Sometimes she called her queer. Sometimes she said she did not understand her. These expressions were ice to the daughter's heart. They suggested the conclusion that it was perhaps better never to know her parent than to know her and not like her. But one project could she frame whose execution seemed likely to bring her a hope of relief. It was to take a situation, to be a governess. She could do nothing else. A little incident brought her to the point when she found courage to break her design to her uncle. Her long and late walks lay always, as has been said, on lonely roads. But in whatever direction she had rambled, whether along the drear skirts of Stillborough Moor or over the sunny stretch of Nunley Common, her homeward path was still so contrived as to lead her near the hollow. She rarely descended the den, but she visited its brink at twilight almost as regularly as the stars rose over the hill crests. Her resting place was at a certain stile under a certain old thorn. Thence she could look down on the cottage, the mill, the dewy garden ground, the still, deep dam. Thence was visible the well-known counting-house window, from whose panes at a fixed hour shot, suddenly bright, the ray of the well-known lamp. Her errand was to watch for this ray, her reward to catch it, sometimes sparkling bright in clear air, sometimes shimmering dim through mist, and anon flashing broken between slant lines of rain, for she came in all weathers. There were nights when it failed to appear. She knew then that Robert was from home and went away doubly sad, whereas its kindling rendered her elate, as though she saw it in the promise of some indefinite hope. If, while she gazed, a shadow bent between the light and lattice, her heart leaped. That eclipse was Robert. She had seen him. 
She would return home comforted, carrying in her mind a clearer vision of his aspect, a distincter recollection of his voice, his smile, his bearing, and blent with these impressions was often a sweet persuasion that, if she could get near him, his heart might welcome her presence yet, that at this moment he might be willing to extend his hand and draw her to him, and shelter her at his side as he used to do. That night, though, she might weep as usual. She would fancy her tears less scalding. The pillow they watered seemed a little softer. The temples pressed to that pillow ached less. The shortest path from the hollow to the rectory wound near a certain mansion, the same under whose lone walls Malone passed on that night journey mentioned in an earlier chapter of this work. The old and tenantless dwelling eclipsed Fieldhead. Tenantless by the proprietor it had been for ten years, but it was no ruin. Mr. York had seen it kept in good repair, and an old gardener and his wife had lived in it, cultivated the grounds, and maintained the house in habitable condition. If Fieldhead had few other merits as a building, it might at least be termed picturesque. Its regular architecture and the gray and mossy coloring communicated by time gave it a just claim to this epithet. The old latticed windows, the stone porch, the walls, the roof, the chimney stacks were rich in crayon touches and sepia lights and shades. The trees behind were fine, bold, and spreading. The cedar on the lawn in front was grand, and the granite urns on the garden wall, the fretted arch of the gateway, were, for an artist, as the very desire of the eye. One mild May evening, Caroline, passing near about moonrise, and feeling, though weary, unwilling yet to go home, where there was only the bed of thorns and the night of grief to anticipate, sat down on the mossy ground near the gate and gazed through towards cedar and mansion. It was a still night, calm, dewy, cloudless. The gables, turned to the west, reflected the clear amber of the horizon they faced. The oaks behind were black. The cedar was blacker. Under its dense raven bows, a glimpse of sky opened gravely blue. It was full of the moon, which looked solemnly and mildly down on Caroline from beneath that somber canopy. She felt this night in prospect mournfully lovely. She wished she could be happy. She wished she could know inward peace. She wondered Providence had no pity on her, and would not help or console her. Recollections of happy trysts of lovers, commemorated in old ballads, returned to her mind. She thought such tryst and such scene would be blissful. Where now was Robert, she asked. Not at the hollow. She had watched for his lamp long and had not seen it. She questioned within herself whether she and Moore were ever destined to meet and speak again. Suddenly the door within the stone porch of the hall opened, and two men came out, one elderly and white-headed, the other young, dark-haired and tall. They passed across the lawn, out through a portal in the garden wall. Caroline saw them cross the road, pass the stile, descend the fields. She saw them disappear. Robert Moore had passed before her with his friend, Mr. York. Neither had seen her. The apparition had been transient, scarce seen ere gone, but its electric passage left her veins kindled, her soul insurgent. It found her despairing. It left her desperate. Two different states. Oh, had he but been alone, had he but seen me, was her cry. He must have said something. He would have given me his hand. He does. He must love me a little. He would have shown some token of affection. In his eye, on his lips, I should have read comfort. But the chance is lost. The wind, the cloud's shadow, does not pass more silently, more emptily than he. I have been mocked, and heaven is cruel." Thus, in the utter sickness of longing and disappointment, she went home. The next morning at breakfast, Have you any objection, uncle, to my inquiring for a situation in a family? Her uncle, ignorant as the table supporting his coffee cup of all his niece had undergone and was undergoing, scarcely believed his ears. What whim now? he asked. Are you bewitched? What can you mean? I am not well and need a change, she said. He examined her. Where she appeared white-cheeked and miserable-looking as one who had seen a ghost, she inquired of Mr. Halstone. He discovered she had experienced a change at any rate. Without his being aware of it, the rose had dwindled and faded to a mere snowdrop. Bloom had vanished, flesh wasted. She sat before him drooping, colorless and thin. But for the soft expression of her brown eyes, the delicate lines of her features, and the flowing abundance of her hair, she would no longer possess a claim to the epithet pretty. "'What on earth is the matter with you?' he asked. "'What is wrong? How are you ailing?' No answer, only the brown eyes filled, the faintly tinted lips trembled. "'Look out for a situation indeed. For what situation are you fit? What have you been doing with yourself? You are not well.' I should be well if I went home. These women are incomprehensible. They have the strangest knack of startling you with unpleasant surprises. Today you see them bouncing, buxom, red as cherries, and round as apples. Tomorrow they exhibit themselves a feet as dead weeds, blanched and broken down. 
And the reason of it all, that's a good puzzle. She has her meals, her liberty, a good house to live in, and good clothes to wear, as usual. A while since that sufficed to keep her handsome and cheery, and there she sits now, a poor little pale, puling shit enough. Provoking. Then comes the question. What is to be done? I suppose I must send for advice. Will you have a doctor, child? No, uncle, I don't want one. A doctor could do me no good. I merely want change of air and scene. Well, if that be the caprice, it shall be gratified. You shall go to a watering place. I don't mind the expense. Fanny shall accompany you. But, uncle, someday I must do something for myself. I have no fortune. I had better begin now. While I live, you shall not turn out as a governess, Caroline. I will not have it said that my niece is a governess. But the later in life one makes a change of that sort, uncle, the more difficult and painful it is. I should wish to get accustomed to the yoke before any habits of ease and independence are formed. I beg you will not harass me, Caroline. I mean to provide for you. I have always meant to provide for you. I will purchase an annuity. Bless me. I am but fifty-five. My health and constitution are excellent. There is plenty of time to save and take measures. Don't make yourself anxious respecting the future. Is that what frets you? No, uncle, but I long for a change. He laughed. There speaks the woman, cried he. The very woman. A change. A change. Always fantastical and whimsical. Well, it's in her sex. But it is not fantasy and whim, uncle. What is it, then? Necessity, I think. I feel weaker than formerly. I believe I should have more to do. Admirable. She feels weak, and therefore she should be set to hard labor. Claire comme le jour. As more, confound more. You shall go to Cliffbridge, and there are two guineas to buy a new frock. Come, Carrie, never fear. We'll find balm in Gilead. Uncle, I wish you were less generous and more. More what? Sympathizing was the word on Caroline's lips, but it was not uttered. She checked herself in time. Her uncle would indeed have laughed if that namby-pamby word had escaped her. Finding her silent, he said, The fact is, you don't know precisely what you want. Only to be a governess. Pooh, mere nonsense. I'll not hear of governessing. Don't mention it again. It is rather too feminine a fancy. I have finished breakfast. Ring the bell. Put all your crotches out of your head and run away and amuse yourself. What with, my doll? Asked Caroline to herself as she quitted the room. A week or two passed. Her bodily and mental health neither grew worse nor better. She was now precisely in that state when, if her constitution had contained the seeds of consumption, decline, or slow fever, those diseases would have been rapidly developed and would soon have carried her quietly from the world. People never die of love or grief alone, though some die of inherent maladies which the tortures of those passions prematurely force into destructive action. The sound by nature undergo these tortures, and are racked, shaken, shattered. Their beauty and bloom perish, but life remains untouched. They are brought to a certain point of dilapidation. They are reduced to pallor, debility, and emaciation. People think, as they see them gliding languidly about, that they will soon withdraw to sick beds, perish there, and cease from among the healthy and happy. This does not happen. They live on, and though they cannot regain youth and gaiety, they may regain strength and serenity. The blossom which the March wind nips, but fails to sweep away, may survive to hang a withered apple on the tree late into autumn. Having braved the last frosts of spring, it may also brave the first of winter. Everyone noticed the change in Miss Hellstone's appearance, and most people said she was going to die. She never thought so herself. She felt in no dying case. She had neither pain nor sickness. Her appetite was diminished. She knew the reason. It was because she wept so much at night. Her strength was lessened. She could account for it. Sleep was coy and hard to be won. Dreams were distressing and baleful. In the far future, she still seemed to anticipate a time when this passage of misery should be got over, and when she should once more be calm, though perhaps never again happy. Meanwhile, her uncle urged her to visit, to comply with the frequent invitations of their acquaintance. This she evaded doing. She could not be cheerful in company. She felt she was observed there with more curiosity than sympathy. Old ladies were always offering her their advice, recommending this or that nostrum. Young ladies looked at her in a way she understood, and from which she shrank. Their eyes said they knew she had been disappointed, as custom phrases it, by whom they were not certain. Commonplace young ladies can be quite as hard as commonplace young gentlemen, quite as worldly and selfish. Those who suffer should always avoid them. Grief and calamity they despise. They seem to regard them as the judgments of God on the lowly. 
with them to love is merely to contrive a scheme for achieving a good match. To be disappointed is to have their scheme seen through and frustrated. They think the feelings and projects of others on the subject of love similar to their own and judge them accordingly. All this Caroline knew, partly by instinct, partly by observation. She regulated her conduct by her knowledge, keeping her pale face and wasted figure as much out of sight as she could. Living thus in complete seclusion, she ceased to receive intelligence of the little transactions of the neighborhood. One morning, her uncle came into the parlor, where she sat endeavoring to find some pleasure in painting a little group of wild flowers, gathered under a hedge at the top of the hollow fields, and said to her in this abrupt manner, Come, child, why are you always stooping over palette or book or sampler? Leave that tenting work. By the by, do you put your pencil to your lips when you paint? Sometimes, uncle, when I forget. Then it is that which is poisoning you. The paints are deleterious, child. There is white lead and red lead and verdigris and gamboge and twenty other poisons in those color cakes. Lock them up. Lock them up. Get your bonnet on. I want you to make a call with me. With you, uncle? This question was asked in a tone of surprises. She was not accustomed to make calls with her uncle. She never rode or walked out with him on any occasion. Quick, quick, I'm always busy, you know. I have no time to lose. She hurriedly gathered up her materials, asking meantime where they were going. To Fieldhead. Fieldhead? What? To see old James Booth, the gardener. Is he ill? We are going to see Miss Shirley Kildar. Miss Kildar? Is she come to Yorkshire? Is she at Fieldhead? She is. She has been there a week. I met her at a party last night, the party to which you would not go. I was pleased with her. I choose that you shall make her acquaintance. It will do you good. She is not come of age, I suppose. She is come of age, and will reside for a time on her property. I lettered her on the subject. I showed her her duty. She is not intractable. She is rather a fine girl. She will teach you what it is to have a sprightly spirit. Nothing lackadaisical about her. I don't think she will want to see me, or have me introduced to her. What good can I do her? How can I amuse her? Pshaw, put your bonnet on. Is she proud, uncle? Don't know. You hardly imagine she should show her pride to me, I suppose. A chit like that would scarcely presume to give herself airs with the rector of her parish, however rich she might be. No, but how did she behave to other people? Didn't observe. She holds her head high and probably can be saucy enough where she dare. She wouldn't be a woman otherwise. There, away now for your bonnet at once. Not naturally very confident, a failure of physical strength and a depression of spirits had not tended to increase Caroline's presence of mind and ease of manner, or to give her additional courage to face strangers, and she quailed, in spite of self-remonstrance, as she and her uncle walked up the broad, paved approach leading from the gateway of Fieldhead to its porch. She followed Mr. Halston reluctantly through that porch, into the somber old vestibule beyond. Very somber it was, long, vast, and dark, one latticed window lit it but dimly. The wide old chimney contained now no fire, for the present warm weather needed it not. It was filled instead with willow bows. The gallery on high, opposite the entrance, was seen but in outline, so shadowy became this hall towards its ceiling. Carved stag's heads, with real antlers, looked down grotesquely from the walls. This was neither a grand nor a comfortable house. Within as without, it was antique, rambling, and incommodious. A property of a thousand a year belonged to it, which property had descended, for lack of male heirs, on a female. There were mercantile families in the district boasting twice the income, but the Kildars, by virtue of their antiquity and their distinction of lords of the manor, took the precedence of all. Mr. and Miss Hellstone were ushered into a parlor. Of course, as was to be expected in such a gothic old barrack, this parlor was lined with oak. Fine, dark, glossy panels compassed the walls gloomily and grandly. Very handsome, reader, these shiny brown panels are. Very mellow in coloring and tasteful in effect. But, if you know what a spring clean is, very execrable and inhuman. Whoever, having the bowels of humanity, has seen servants scrubbing at these polished wooden walls with beeswaxed cloth on a warm May day must allow that they are intolerable and not to be endured, and I cannot but secretly applaud the benevolent barbarian who had painted another and larger apartment of Fieldhead, the drawing-room, to wit, formerly also an oak room, of a delicate pinky white, thereby earning for himself the character of a hun, but mightily enhancing the cheerfulness of that portion of his abode, and saving future housemates a world of toil. The brown-paneled parlor was furnished in an old style, and with real old furniture. On each side of the high mantelpiece stood two antique chairs of oak, solid as sylvan thrones, and in one of these sat a lady, but if this were Miss Kildar, she must have come of age at least some twenty years ago. 
She was of a matronly form, and though she wore no cap and possessed hair of quite an undimmed auburn, shading small and naturally young-looking features, she had no youthful aspect, not apparently the wish to assume it. You could have wished her attire of a newer fashion. In a well-cut, well-made gown, hers would have been no uncomely presence. It puzzled you to guess why a garment of handsome materials should be arranged in such scanty folds and devised after such an obsolete mode. You felt disposed to set down the wearer as somewhat eccentric at once. This lady received the visitors with a mixture of ceremony and diffidence quite English. No middle-aged matron who was not an Englishwoman could evince precisely the same manner, a manner so uncertain of herself, of her own merits, of her power to please, and yet so anxious to be proper, and, if possible, rather agreeable than otherwise. In the present instance, however, more embarrassment was shown than is usual, even with diffident Englishwomen. Miss Hellstone felt this, sympathized with the stranger, and knowing by experience what was good for the timid, took a seat quietly near her and began to talk to her with a gentle ease, communicated for the moment by the presence of one less self-possessed than herself. She and this lady would, if alone, have at once got on extremely well together. The lady had the clearest voice imaginable, infinitely softer and more tuneful than could have been reasonably expected from forty years, and a form decidedly inclined to un bon point. This voice Caroline liked. It atoned for the formal, if correct, accent and language. The lady would soon have discovered she liked it and her, and in ten minutes they would have been friends. But Mr. Hellstone stood on the rug looking at them both, looking especially at the strange lady with a sarcastic keen eye that clearly expressed impatience of her chilly ceremony and annoyance of her want of aplomb. His hard gaze and rasping voice discomfited the lady more and more. She tried, however, to get up little speeches about the weather, the aspect of the country, etc., but the impracticable Mr. Hellstone presently found himself somewhat deaf. Whatever she said, he affected not to hear distinctly, and she was obliged to go over each elaborately constructed nothing twice. The effort soon became too much for her. She was just rising in a perplexed flutter, nervously murmuring that she knew not what detained Miss Kildar, that she would go and look for her when Miss Kildar saved her the trouble by appearing. It was to be presumed, at least, that she who now came in through a glass door from the garden owned that name. There was a real grace and an ease of manner, and so old Hellstone felt when an erect, slight girl walked up to him, retaining with her left hand her little silk apron full of flowers, and, giving him her right hand, said pleasantly, I know you would come to see me, though you do think Mr. York has made me a Jacobin. Good morning. But we'll not have you a Jacobin, returned he. No, Miss Shirley, they shall not steal the flower of my parish from me. Now that you are amongst us, you shall be my pupil in politics and religion. I'll teach you sound doctrine on both points. Mrs. Pryor has anticipated you, she replied, turning to the elder lady. Mrs. Pryor, you know, was my governess, and is still my friend. And of all the high and rigid Tories, she is queen. Of all the staunch churchwomen, she is chief. I have been well drilled both in theology and history, I assure you, Mr. Hellstone. The rector immediately bowed very low to Mrs. Pryor, and expressed himself obliged to her. The ex-governess disclaimed skill either in political or religious controversy, explained that she thought such matters little adapted for female minds, but avowed herself in general terms the advocate of order and loyalty, and, of course, truly attached to the establishment. She added she was ever averse to change under any circumstances, and something scarcely audible about the extreme danger of being too ready to take up new ideas closed her sentence. Miss Kildar thinks as you think, I hope, madam. Difference of age and difference of temperament occasion difference of sentiment, was the reply. It can scarcely be expected that the eager and young should hold the opinions of the cool and middle-aged. "'Oh, oh, we are independent. We think for ourselves,' cried Mr. Hellstone. "'We are a little Jacobin, for anything I know. A little freethinker and a good earnest. Let us have a confession of faith on the spot.' And he took the heiress's two hands, causing her to let fall her whole cargo of flowers, and seated her by him on the sofa. "'Say your creed,' he ordered. "'The Apostles' Creed?' "'Yes,' she said it like a child. "'Now for St. Athanius's. That's the test.' Let me gather up my flowers. Here is Tartar coming. He will tread upon them. Tartar was a rather large, strong, and fierce-looking dog, very ugly, being of a breed between Mastiff and Bulldog, who at this moment entered through the glass door, and posting directly to the rug, snuffed the fresh flowers scattered there. He seemed to scorn them as food, but probably thinking their velvety petals might be convenient as litter, he was turning round preparatory to depositing his tawny bulk upon them, when Miss Hellstone and Miss Kildar simultaneously stooped to the rescue. Thank you, 
said the heiress, as she again held out her little apron for Caroline to heap the blossoms into it. Is this your daughter, Mr. Hellstone? she asked. My niece, Caroline. Miss Kildar shook hands with her and then looked at her. Caroline also looked at her hostess. Shirley Kildar, she had no Christian name but Shirley, her parents, who had wished to have a son, finding that, after eight years of marriage, Providence had granted them only a daughter, bestowed on her the same masculine family cognomen they would have bestowed on a boy, if with a boy they had been blessed. Shirley Kildar was no ugly heiress. She was agreeable to the eye. Her height and shape were not unlike Miss Hellstone's. Perhaps in stature she might have the advantage by an inch or two. She was gracefully made, and her face, too, possessed a charm as well described by the word grace as any other. It was pale naturally, but intelligent, and of varied expression. She was not a blonde like Caroline. Clear and dark were the characteristics of her aspect as to color. Her face and brow were clear, her eyes of the darkest gray, no green lights in them, transparent, pure, neutral gray, and her hair of the darkest brown. Her features were distinguished, by which I do not mean they were high, bony, and Roman, being indeed rather small and slightly marked than otherwise, but only that they were, to use a few French words, fine, gracieux, spirituels. Mobile they were in speaking, but their changes were not to be understood, nor their language interpreted all at once. She examined Caroline seriously, inclining her head a little to one side with a thoughtful air. You see, she is only a feeble chick, observed Mr. Hellstone. She looks young, younger than I. How old are you? She inquired, in a manner that would have been patronizing if it had not been extremely solemn and simple. Eighteen years and six months. And I am twenty-one. She said no more. She had now placed her flowers on the table and was busied in arranging them. And St. Athanius's Creed, urged the rector. You believe it all, don't you? I can't remember it quite all. I will give you a nosegay, Mr. Hellstone, when I have given your niece one. She had selected a little bouquet of one brilliant and two or three delicate flowers, relieved by a spray of dark verdure. She tied it with silk from her workbox and placed it on Caroline's lap, and then she put her hands behind her and stood bending slightly towards her guest, still regarding her, in the attitude and with something of the aspect of a grave but gallant little cavalier. This temporary expression of face was aided by the style in which she wore her hair, parted on one temple and brushed in a glossy sweep above the forehead, whence it fell in curls that looked natural, so free were their wavy undulations. "'Are you tired with your walk?' she inquired. "'No, not in the least. It is but a short distance, but a mile.' "'You look pale.' Is she always so pale? she asked, turning to the rector. She used to be as rosy as the reddest of your flowers. Why has she altered? What has made her pale? Has she been ill? She tells me she wants a change. She ought to have one. You ought to give her one. You should send her to the seacoast. I will, ere summer is over. Meantime, I intend her to make acquaintance with you if you have no objection. I am sure Miss Kildar will have no objection, here observed Mrs. Pryor. I think I may take it upon me to say that Miss Helston's frequent presence at Fieldhead will be esteemed a favor. You speak my sentiments precisely, ma'am, said Shirley, and I thank you for anticipating me. Let me tell you, she continued, turning again to Caroline, that you also ought to thank my governess. It is not everyone she would welcome as she has welcomed you. You are distinguished more than you think. This morning, as soon as you are gone, I shall ask Mrs. Pryor's opinion of you. I am apt to rely on her judgment of character, for hitherto I have found it wondrous accurate. Already I foresee a favorable answer to my inquiries. My dear, you said but now you would ask my opinion when Miss Hellstone was gone. I am scarcely likely to give it in her presence. No, and perhaps it will be long enough before I obtain it. I am sometimes sadly tantalized, Mr. Hellstone, by Mrs. Pryor's extreme caution. Her judgments ought to be correct when they come, for they are often as tardy of delivery as the Lord Chancellor's. On some people's characters, I cannot get her to pronounce a sentence and treat as I may. Mrs. Pryor here smiled. Yes, said her pupil. I know what that smile means. You are thinking of my gentleman tenant. Do you know Mr. Moore of the Hollow? She asked Mr. Hellstone. Aye, aye, your tenant. Do I not guess rightly, Mrs. Pryor? So he is. You have seen a good deal of him, no doubt, since you came. I have been obliged to see him. There was business to transact. Business. Really, the word makes me conscious I am indeed no longer a girl, but quite a woman and something more. I am an esquire. Shirley Kildar, esquire, ought to be my style and title. They gave me a man's name. I hold a man's position. It is enough to inspire me with a touch of manhood. 
And when I see such people at that stately Anglo-Belgian, that Gerard Moore before me, gravely talking to me of business, really I feel quite gentlemanlike. You must choose me for your church warden, Mr. Halstone, the next time you elect new ones. They ought to make me a magistrate and a captain of yeomanry. Tony Lumpkin's mother was a colonel, and his aunt a justice of the peace. Why shouldn't I be? With all my heart, if you choose to get up a requisition on the subject, I promise to head the list of signatures with my name. But you were speaking of Moore. Ah, yes, I find it a little difficult to understand Mr. Moore, to know what to think of him, whether to be like him or not. He seems a tenant of whom any proprietor might be proud, and proud of him I am, in that sense. But as a neighbor, what is he? Again and again I have entreated Mrs. Pryor to say what she thinks of him, but she still evades returning a direct answer. I hope you will be less oracular, Mr. Hellstone, and pronounce it once. Do you like him? Not at all just now. His name is entirely blotted for my good books. What is the matter? What has he done? My uncle and he disagree on politics, interposed the low voice of Caroline. She had better not have spoken just then. Having scarcely joined in the conversation before, it was not apropos to do it now. She felt this with nervous acuteness as soon as she had spoken and colored to the eyes. What are Moore's politics? inquired Shirley. Those of a tradesman, returned the rector, narrow, selfish, and unpatriotic. The man is eternally right in speaking against the continuance of the war. I have no patience with him. The war hurts his trade. I remember he remarked that only yesterday. But what other objection have you of him? That is enough. He looks a gentleman in my sense of the term, pursued Shirley, and it pleases me to think he is such. Caroline rent the Tyrian petals of one of the brilliant flowers in her bouquet and answered in distinct tones, Decidedly he is. Shirley, hearing this courageous affirmation, flashed an arch, searching glance at the speaker from her deep expressive eyes. You are his friend at any rate, she said. You defend him in his absence. I am both his friend and his relative, was the prompt reply. Robert Moore is my cousin. Oh, then, you can tell me all about him. Just give me a sketch of his character. Insuperable embarrassment seized Caroline when this demand was made. She could not and did not attempt to comply with it. Her silence was immediately covered by Mrs. Pryor, who proceeded to address sundry questions to Mr. Halstone regarding a family or two in the neighborhood, with whose connections in the South she said she was acquainted. Shirley soon withdrew her gaze from Miss Halstone's face. She did not renew her interrogations, but returning to her flowers, proceeded to choose a nosegay for the rector. She presented it to him as he took leave, and received the homage of a salute on the hand in return. Be sure you wear it for my sake, said she. Next to my heart, of course, responded Halstone. Mrs. Pryor, take care of this future magistrate, this churchwarden in perspective, this captain of yeomanry, this young squire of Briarfield, in a word. Don't let him exert himself too much. Don't let him break his neck in hunting. Especially, let him mind how he rides down that dangerous hill near the hollow. I like a descent, said Shirley. I like to clear it rapidly, and especially I like that romantic hollow with all my heart. Romantic with a mill in it. Romantic with a mill in it. The old mill and the white cottage are each admirable in its way. And the counting house, Mr. Kildar? The counting house is better than the bloom-colored drawing room. I adore the counting house. And the trade, the cloth, the greasy wool, the polluting dyeing vats. The trade is to be thoroughly respected. And the tradesman is a hero. Good. I'm glad to hear you say so. I thought the tradesman looked heroic. Mischief, spirit, and glee sparkled all over her face as she thus bandied words with the old Cossack, who almost equally enjoyed the tilt. Captain Kieldar, you have no mercantile blood in your veins. Why are you so fond of trade? Because I am a mill owner, of course. Half my income comes from the works in that hollow. Don't enter into partnership, that's all. You've put it into my head! You've put it into my head! She exclaimed with a joyous laugh. It will never get out. Thank you! And, waving her hand, white as a lily and fine as a fairy's, she vanished within the porch while the rector and his niece passed out through the arched gateway. Chapter 12. Shirley and Caroline. Shirley showed she had been sincere in saying she should be glad of Caroline's society, by frequently seeking it, and, indeed, if she had not sought it, she would not have had it, for Miss Hellstone was slow to make fresh acquaintance. She was always held back by the idea that people could not want her, that she could not amuse them, and a brilliant, happy, youthful creature like the heiress of Fieldhead seemed to her too completely independent of society, so interesting as hers ever to find it really welcome. Shirley might be brilliant, and probably happy likewise, but no one is independent of genial society. 
and though in about a month she had made the acquaintance of most of the families round, and was on quite free and easy terms with all the Mrs. Sykes, and all the Mrs. Pearsons, and the two superlative Mrs. Wynne of Walden Hall, yet, it appeared, she found none amongst them very genial. She fraternized with none of them, to use her own words. If she had had the bliss to be really surely Kildar Esquire, Lord of the Manor of Briarfield, there was not a single fair one in this and the two neighboring parishes whom she would have felt disposed to request to become Mrs. Kildar, Lady of the Manor. This declaration she made to Mrs. Pryor, who received it very quietly, as she did most of her pupils' offhand speeches, responding, My dear, do not allow that habit of alluding to yourself as a gentleman to be confirmed. It is a strange one. Those who do not know you, hearing you speak thus, would think you affected masculine manners. Shirley never laughed at her former governess. Even the little formalities and harmless peculiarities of that lady were respectable in her eyes. Had it been otherwise, she would have proved herself a weak character at once, for it is only the weak who make a butt of quiet worth. Therefore, she took her remonstrance in silence. She stood quietly near the window, looking at the grand cedar on her lawn, watching a bird on one of its lower bows. Presently, she began to chirrup to the bird. Soon her chirrup grew clearer. Ere long, she was whistling. The whistle struck into a tune, and very sweetly and deftly it was executed. "'My dear!' expostulated Mrs. Pryor. "'Was I whistling?' said Shirley. "'I forgot. I beg your pardon, ma'am. I had resolved to take care not to whistle before you.' "'But, Miss Kildar, where did you learn to whistle? You must have got the habit since you came down into Yorkshire. I never knew you guilty of it before. Oh, I learned to whistle a long while ago.' Who taught you? No one. I took it up by listening, and I had laid it down again. But lately, yesterday evening, as I was coming up our lane, I heard a gentleman whistling that very tune in the field on the other side of the hedge, and that reminded me. What gentleman was it? We have only one gentleman in this region, ma'am, and that is Mr. Moore. At least he is the only gentleman who is not gray-haired. My two venerable favorites, Mr. Helston and Mr. York, it is true, are fine old bows, infinitely better than any of the stupid young ones. Mrs. Pryor was silent. You do not like Mr. Helstone, ma'am? My dear, Mr. Helston's office secures him from criticism. You generally contrive to leave the room when he is announced. Do you walk out this morning, my dear? Yes, I shall go to the rectory and seek and find Caroline Helstone and make her take some exercise. She shall have a breezy walk over Nunley Common. If you go in that direction, my dear, have the goodness to remind Miss Helstone to wrap up well, as there is a fresh wind, and she appears to me to require care. You shall be minutely obeyed, Mrs. Pryor. Meantime, will you not accompany us yourself? No, my love, I should be restrained upon you. I am stout and cannot walk so quickly as you would wish to do. Shirley easily persuaded Caroline to go with her, and when they were fairly out on the quiet road, traversing the extensive and solitary sweep of Nunley Common, she as easily drew her into conversation. The first feelings of diffidence overcome, Caroline soon felt glad to talk with Miss Kildar. The very first interchange of slight observations sufficed to give each an idea of what the other was. Shirley said she liked the green sweep of the common turf, and, better still, the heath on its ridges, for the heath reminded her of moors. She had seen moors when she was traveling on the borders near Scotland. She remembered particularly a district traversed one long afternoon on a sultry but sunless day in summer. They journeyed from noon till sunset, over what seemed a boundless waste of deep heath, and nothing had they seen but wild sheep, nothing heard but the cries of wild birds. I know how the heath would look on such a day, said Caroline, purple-black, a deeper shade of the sky tint, and that would be livid. Yes, quite livid, with brassy edges to the clouds, and here and there a white gleam, more ghastly than the lurid tinge, which, as you looked at it, you momentarily expected would kindle into blinding lightning. Did it thunder? It muttered distant peals, but the storm did not break till evening after we had reached our inn, that inn being an isolated house at the foot of a range of mountains. Did you watch the clouds come down over the mountains? I did. I stood at the window an hour watching them. The hills seemed rolled in a sullen mist, and when the rain fell in whitening sheets, suddenly they were blotted from the prospect. They were washed from the world. I have seen such storms in hilly districts in Yorkshire, and at their righteous climax, while the sky was all cataract, the earth all flood, I remembered the deluge. It is singularly reviving after such hurricanes to feel calm return, and from the opening clouds to receive a consolatory gleam, softly testifying that the sun is not quenched. Miss Kildar, just stand still now, and look down at Nunnally Dale and Wood. They both halted on the green brow of the common. They looked down on the deep valley, robed in May raiment, on varied meads, some pearled with daisies, and some golden with kingcups. 
Today, all this young verdure smiled clear in sunlight. Transparent emerald and amber gleams played over it. On Nunwood, the sole remnant of antique British forest in a region whose lowlands were once all sylvan chase, as its highlands were breast-deep heather, slept the shadow of a cloud. The distant hills were dappled, the horizon was shaded and tinted like mother of pearl. Silvery blues, soft purples, evanescent greens, and rose shades, all melted into fleeces of white cloud, pure as azuri snow, alert to the eye as with a remote glimpse of heaven's foundations. The air blowing on the brow was fresh and sweet and bracing. Our England is a bonny island, said Shirley, and Yorkshire is one of her bonniest nooks. You are a Yorkshire girl too? I am, Yorkshire in blood and birth. Five generations of my race sleep under the aisles of Briarfield Church. I drew my first breath in the old black hall behind us. Hereupon, Caroline presented her hand, which was accordingly taken and shaken. We are compatriots, said she. Yes, agreed Shirley with a grave nod. And that, asked Miss Kildar, pointing to the forest. That is Nunwood? It is. Were you ever there? Many a time. In the heart of it? Yes. What is it like? It is like an encampment of forest sons of Anak. The trees are huge and old. When you stand at their roots, the summits seem in another region. The trunks remain still and firm as pillars, while the boughs sway to every breeze. In the deepest calm, their leaves are never quite hushed, and in high wind a flood rushes, a sea thunders above you. Was it not one of Robin Hood's haunts? Yes, and there are mementos of him still existing. To penetrate into Nunwood, Miss Kildar, is to go far back into the dim days of Eld. Can you see a break in the forest about the center? Yes, distinctly. That break is a dell, a deep hollow cup lined with turfs as green and short as the sod of this common. The very oldest of the trees, gnarled mighty oaks, crowd about the brink of this dell. In the bottom lie the ruins of a nunnery. We will go, you and I alone, Caroline, to that wood, early some fine summer morning, and spend a long day there. We can take pencils and sketchbooks, and any interesting reading book we like. And of course, we shall take something to eat. I have two little baskets in which Mrs. Gill, my housekeeper, might pack our provisions, and we could each carry our own. It would not tire you too much to walk so far. Oh, no, especially if we rested the whole day in the wood. And I know all the pleasantest spots. I know where we could get nuts in nutting time. I know where wild strawberries abound. I know certain lonely, quite untrodden glades, carpeted with strange mosses, some yellows if gilded, some a sober gray, some gem green. I know groups of trees that ravish the eye with their perfect picture-like effects. Rude oak, delicate birch, glossy beech, clustered in contrast, and ash trees, stately as Saul, standing isolated, and superannuated wood giants clad in bright shrouds of ivy. Miss Kildar, I could guide you. You would not be dull with me alone. I should not. I think we should suit. And what third person is there whose presence would not spoil our pleasure? Indeed, I know of none about our own ages. No lady, at least. And as to gentlemen. An excursion becomes quite a different thing when there are gentlemen of the party, interrupted Caroline. I agree with you. Quite a different thing to what we were proposing. We were going simply to see the old trees, the old ruins, to pass a day in old times, surrounded by olden silence, and above all by quietude. You are right, and the presence of gentlemen dispels the last charm, I think. If they are of the wrong sort, like your Malones and your young Sykes and Wins, irritation takes the place of serenity. If they are of the right sort, there is still a change. I can hardly tell what change. One easy to feel, difficult to describe. We forget nature, imprimis. And then nature forgets us, covers her vast calm brow with a dim veil, conceals her face, and withdraws the peaceful joy with which, if we had been content to worship her only, she would have filled our hearts. What does she give us instead? More elation and more anxiety, an excitement that steals the hours away fast, and a trouble that ruffles their course. Our power of being happy lies a good deal in ourselves, I believe, remarked Caroline sagely. I have gone to Nunwood with a large party, all the curates and some other gentry of these parts, together with sundry ladies, and I found the affair insufferably tedious and absurd. And I have gone quite alone, or accompanied but by Fanny, who sat in the woodman's hut and sewed, or talked to the good wife while I roamed about and made sketches or read, and have enjoyed much happiness of a quiet kind all day long. But that was when I was young, two years ago. Did you ever go with your cousin, Robert Moore? Yes, once. What sort of companion is he on these occasions? A cousin, you know, is different to a stranger. I am aware of that, but cousins, if they are stupid, are still more insupportable than strangers, because you cannot so easily keep them at a distance. But your cousin is not stupid. No, but... Well? 
If the company of fools irritates, as you say, the society of clever men leaves its own peculiar pain also. Where the goodness or talent of your friend is beyond and above all doubt, your own worthiness to be his associate often becomes a matter of question. Oh, there I cannot follow you. That crotchet is not one I should choose to entertain for an instant. I consider myself not unworthy to be the associate of the best of them, of gentlemen, I mean, though that is saying a great deal. Where they are good, they are very good, I believe. Your uncle, by the by, is not a bad specimen of the elderly gentleman. I am always glad to see his brown, keen, sensible old face, either in my own house or any other. Are you fond of him? Is he kind to you? Now, speak the truth. He has brought me up from childhood. I doubt not, precisely, as he would have brought up his own daughter, if he had had one. And that is kindness. But I am not fond of him. I would rather be out of his presence than in it. Strange, when he has an art of making himself so agreeable. Yes, in company, but he is stern and silent at home, and he puts away his cane and shovel hat in the rectory hall, so he locks his liveliness in his bookcase and study desk. The knitted brow and brief word for the fireside, the smile, the jest, the witty sally for society. Is he tyrannical? Not in the least. He is neither tyrannical nor hypocritical. He is simply a man who is rather liberal than good-natured, rather brilliant than genial, rather scrupulously equitable than truly just, if you can understand such superfine distinctions. Oh, yes, good nature implies indulgence, which he has not. Geniality, warmth of heart, which he does not own, and genuine justice is the offspring of sympathy and considerateness, of which, I can well conceive, my bronzed old friend is quite innocent. I often wonder, surely, whether most men resemble my uncle in their domestic relations, whether it is necessary to be new and unfamiliar to them in order to seem agreeable or estimable in their eyes, and whether it is impossible to their natures to retain a constant interest and affection for those they see every day. I don't know. I can't clear up your doubts. I ponder over similar ones myself sometimes. But, to tell you a secret, if I were convinced that they were necessarily and universally different from us, fickle, soon petrifying, unsympathizing, I would never marry. I should not like to find out that what I loved did not love me, that it was wary of me, and that whatever effort I might make to please would hereafter be worse than useless, since it was inevitably in its nature to change and become indifferent. That discovery once made, what should I long for? To go away, to remove from a presence where my society gave no pleasure. But you could not if you were married. No, I could not. There it is. I could never be my own mistress more. A terrible thought. It suffocates me. Nothing irks me like the idea of being a burden and a bore, an inevitable burden, a ceaseless bore. Now, when I feel my company superfluous, I can comfortably fold my independence round me like a mantle and drop my pride like a veil and withdraw to solitude. If married, that could not be. I wonder we don't all make up our minds to remain single, said Caroline. We should if we listen to the wisdom of experience. My uncle always speaks of marriage as a burden, and I believe whenever he hears of a man being married, he invariably regards him as a fool, or at any rate, at doing a foolish thing. But Caroline, men are not all like your uncle. Surely not. I hope not. She paused and mused. I suppose we each find an exception in the one we love, till we are married, suggested Caroline. I suppose so. And this exception we believe to be of sterling materials. We fancy it like ourselves. We imagine a sense of harmony. We think his voice gives the softest, truest promise of a heart that will never harden against us. We read in his eyes that faithful feeling, affection. I don't think we should trust to what they call passion at all, Caroline. I believe it is a mere fire of dry sticks, blazing up and vanishing. But we watch him, and see him kind to animals, to little children, to poor people. He is kind to us likewise, good, considerate. He does not flatter women, but he is patient with them, and he seems to be easy in their presence, and to find their company genial. He likes them not only for vain and selfish reasons, but as we like him, because we like him. Then we observe that he is just, that he always speaks the truth, that he is conscientious. We feel joy and peace when he comes into a room. We feel sadness and trouble when he leaves it. We know that this man has been a kind son, that he is a kind brother. Will anyone dare tell me that he will not be a kind husband? My uncle would affirm it unhesitatingly. He will be sick of you in a month, he would say. Mrs. Pryor would seriously intimate the same. Mrs. York and Miss Mann would darkly suggest ditto. If they are true oracles, it is good never to fall in love. Very good, if you can avoid it. I choose to doubt their truth. I am afraid that proves you are already caught. Not I, but if I were, do you know what soothsayers I would consult? Let me hear. 
Neither man nor woman, elderly nor young, the little Irish beggar that comes barefoot to my door, the mouse that steals out of the cranny in the wainscot, the bird that in frost and snow pecks at my window for a crumb, the dog that licks my hand and sits beside my knee. Did you ever see anyone who was kind to such things? Did you ever see anyone whom such things seemed instinctively to follow, like rely on? We have a black cat and an old dog at the rectory. I know somebody to whose knee that black cat loves to climb, against whose shoulder and cheek it likes to purr. The old dog always comes out of his kennel and wags his tail, and whines affectionately when somebody passes. And what does that somebody do? He quietly strokes the cat, and lets her sit while he conveniently can, and when he must disturb her by rising, he puts her softly down, and never flings her from him roughly. He always whistles to the dog and gives him a caress. Does he? Is it not Robert? But it is Robert. Handsome fellow, said Shirley with enthusiasm. Her eyes sparkled. Is he not handsome? Has he not fine eyes and well-cut features, and a dear princely forehead? He has all that, Caroline. Bless him. He is both graceful and good. I am sure you would see that he was. When I first looked at your face, I knew you would. I was well inclined to him before I saw him. I liked him when I did see him. I admire him now. There is charm and beauty for itself, Caroline. When it is blunt with goodness, there is powerful charm. When mind is added, Shirley? Who can resist it? Remember my uncle, Madame Pryor, York, and Man. Remember the croaking of the frogs of Egypt. He is a noble being. I tell you, when they are good, they are the lords of the creation. They are the sons of God. Molded in their maker's image, the minutest spark of his spirit lifts them almost above mortality. Indisputably, a great, good, handsome man is the first of created things. Above us, I would scorn to contend for empire with him. I would scorn it. Shall my left hand dispute for precedence with my right? Shall my heart quarrel with my pulse? Shall my veins be jealous of the blood which fills them? Men and women, husbands and wives, quarrel horribly, surely. Poor things, poor fallen degenerate things. God made them for another lot, for other feelings. But are we men's equals, or are we not? Nothing ever charms me more than when I meet my superior, one who makes me sincerely feel that he is superior. Did you ever meet him? I should be glad to see him any day. The higher above me, so much the better. It degrades to stoop. It is glorious to look up. What frets me is that when I try to esteem, I am baffled. When religiously inclined, there are but false gods to adore. I disdain to be a pagan. Miss Kildar, will you come in? We are at the rectory gates. Not today, but tomorrow I shall fetch you to spend the evening with me. Caroline Hellstone, if you really are what at present to me you seem, you and I will suit. I've never in my whole life been able to talk to a young lady as I have talked to you this morning. Kiss me, and goodbye. Mrs. Pryor seemed as well disposed to cultivate Caroline's acquaintance as Shirley. She, who went nowhere else, called on an early day at the rectory. She came in the afternoon when the rector happened to be out. It was rather a close day. The heat of the weather had flushed her, and she seemed fluttered, too, by the circumstance of entering a strange house, for it appeared her habits were most retiring and secluded. When Miss Hellstone went to her in the dining room, she found her seated on the sofa, trembling, fanning herself with her handkerchief, and seeming to contend with a nervous discomposure that threatened to become hysterical. Caroline marveled somewhat at this unusual want of self-command in a lady of her years, and also at the lack of real strength in one who appeared almost robust, for Mrs. Pryor hastened to allege the fatigue of her walk, the heat of the sun, etc., as reasons for her temporary indisposition, and still as, with more hurry than coherence, she again and again enumerated these causes of exhaustion. Caroline gently sought to relieve her by opening her shawl and removing her bonnet. Attentions of this sort Mrs. Pryor would not have accepted from everyone. In general, she recoiled from touch or close approach with a mixture of embarrassment and coldness, far from flattering to those who offered her aid. To Miss Hellstone's little light hand, however, she yielded tractably and seemed soothed by its contact. In a few minutes, she ceased to tremble and grew quiet and tranquil. Her usual manner being resumed, she proceeded to talk of ordinary topics. In a miscellaneous company, Mrs. Pryor rarely opened her lips, or, if obliged to speak, she spoke under restraint, and consequently not well. In dialogue, she was a good converser. Her language, always a little formal, was well chosen. Her sentiments were just. Her information was varied and correct. Caroline felt it pleasant to listen to her, more pleasant than she could have anticipated. On the wall opposite the sofa where they sat hung three pictures. The center one above the mantelpiece, that of a lady, the two others male portraits. That is a beautiful face, 
said Mrs. Pryor, interrupting a brief pause which had followed half an hour's animated conversation. The features may be termed perfect. No statuary's chisel could improve them. It is a portrait from the life, I presume. It is a portrait of Mrs. Hellstone. Of Mrs. Matthewson Hellstone, of your uncle's wife. It is, and it is said to be a good likeness. Before her marriage, she was accounted the beauty of the district. I should say she merited the distinction. What accuracy in all the lineaments. It is, however, a passive face. The original could not have been what is generally termed a woman of spirit. I believe she was a remarkably still, silent person. One would scarcely have expected, my dear, that young girl's choice would have fallen on a partner of that description. Is he not fond of being amused by a lively chat? In company he is, but he always says you could never do with a talking wife. You must have quiet at home. You go out to gossip, he affirms. You come home to read and reflect. Mrs. Matthewson lived but a few years after her marriage, I think I have heard. About five years. Well, my dear, pursued Mrs. Pryor, rising to go, I trust it is understood that you will frequently come to Fieldhead. I hope you will. You must feel lonely here, having no female relative in the house. You must necessarily pass much of your time in solitude. I am inured to it. I have grown up by myself. May I arrange your shawl for you? Mrs. Pryor submitted to be assisted. Should you chance to require help in your studies, she said, you may command me. Caroline expressed her sense of such kindness. I hope to have frequent conversations with you. I should wish to be of use to you again. Again, Miss Helstone returned thanks. She thought what a kind heart was hidden under her visitor's seeming chilliness. Observing that Mrs. Pryor again glanced with an air of interest towards the portraits as she walked down the room, Caroline casually explained, The likeness that hangs near the window, you will see, is my uncle, taken twenty years ago. The other, to the left of the mantelpiece, is his brother James, my father. They resemble each other in some measure, said Mrs. Pryor, yet a difference of character may be traced in the different mold of the brown mouth. What difference? inquired Caroline, accompanying her to the door. James Hellstone, that is, my father, is generally considered the best looking of the two. Strangers, I remark, always exclaim, What a handsome man! Do you think his picture handsome, Mrs. Pryor? It is much softer or finer feature than that of your uncle. But where or what is the difference of character to which you alluded? Tell me. I wish to see if you guess right. My dear, your uncle is a man of principle. His forehead and his lips are firm and his eye is steady. Well, and the other? Do not be afraid of offending me. I always like the truth. Do you like the truth? It is well for you. Adhere to that preference. Never swerve thence. The other, my dear, if he had been living now, would probably have furnished little support to his daughter. It is, however, a graceful head, taken in youth, I should think. My dear, turning abruptly, you acknowledge an inestimable value in principle. I'm sure no character can have true worth without it. You feel what you say. You have considered the subject. Often, circumstances early forced it upon my attention. The lesson was not lost then, though it came so prematurely. I suppose the soil is not light nor stony, otherwise seed falling in that season would never have borne fruit. My dear, do not stand in the air of the door, you will take cold. Good afternoon. Miss Helstone's new acquaintance soon became a value to her. Their society was acknowledged a privilege. She found she would have been an error indeed to have let slip this chance of relief, to have neglected to avail herself of this happy change. A turn was thereby given to her thoughts. A new channel was opened for them, which, diverting a few of them at least from the one direction, in which all had hitherto tended, abated the impetuosity of their rush and lessened the force of their pressure on one worn-down point. Soon she was content to spend whole days at Fieldhead, doing by turns whatever Shirley or Mrs. Pryor wished her to do, and now one would claim her, now the other. Nothing could be less demonstrative than the friendship of the elder lady, but also nothing could be more vigilant, assiduous, and tiring. I have intimated that she was a peculiar personage, and in nothing was her peculiarity more shown than in her nature of the interest she evinced for Caroline. She watched all her movements. She seemed as if she would have guarded all her steps. It gave her pleasure to be applied to by Miss Hellstone for advice and assistance. She yielded her aid when asked with such quiet yet obvious enjoyment that Caroline ere long took delight in depending on her. Shirley Kildar's complete docility with Mrs. Pryor had at first surprised Miss Halstone, and not less the fact of the reserved ex-governess being so much at home and at ease in the residence of her young pupil, where she filled with such quiet independency a very dependent post. But she soon found that it needed but to know both ladies to comprehend fully the enigma. Everyone, it seemed to her, must like, must love, must prize Mrs. Pryor when they knew her. 
no matter that she perseveringly wore old-fashioned gowns, that her speech was formal and her manner cool, that she had twenty little ways such as nobody else had, she was still such a stay, such a counselor, so truthful, so kind in her way, that in Caroline's idea, none once accustomed to her presence could easily afford to dispense with it. As to dependency or humiliation, Caroline did not feel it in her intercourse with Shirley, and why should Mrs. Pryor? The heiress was rich, very rich, compared with her new friend. One possessed a clear thousand a year, the other not a penny, and yet there was a safe sense of equality experienced in her society, never known in that of the ordinary Briarfield and Winbury gentry. The reason was, Shirley's head ran on other things than money and position. She was glad to be independent as to property. By fits, she was even elated at the notion of being lady of the manor and having tenants in an estate. She was especially tickled with an agreeable complacency when reminded of all that property down in the hollow, comprising an excellent cloth mill, dye house, warehouse, together with the massage, gardens, and outbuildings, termed Hollow's Cottage. But her exultations being quite undisguised were singularly inoffensive, and for her serious thoughts they tended elsewhere. To admire the great, reverence the good, and be joyous with the genial was very much the bent of Shirley's soul. She mused, therefore, on the means of following this bent far oftener than she pondered on her social superiority. In Caroline, Miss Kildar had first taken an interest because she was quiet, retiring, looked delicate, and seemed as if she needed someone to take care of her. Her predilection increased greatly when she discovered that her own way of thinking and talking was understood and responded to by this new acquaintance. She had hardly expected it. Miss Hellstone, she fancied, had too pretty a face, manners and voice too soft, to be anything out of the common way in mind and attainments, and she very much wondered to see the gentle features light up archly to the reveal of a dry sally or two wrist by herself, and more did she wonder to discover the self-won knowledge treasured and the untaught speculations working in that girlish, curl-veiled head. Caroline's instinct of taste, too, was like her own. Such books as Miss Kildar had read with the most pleasure were Miss Hellstone's delight also. They held many aversions, too, in common, and could have the comfort of laughing together over works of false sentimentality and pompous pretension. Few, surely conceived, men or women, have the right taste in poetry, the right sense for discriminating between what is real and what is false. She had again and again heard very clever people pronounce this or that passage in this or that versifier, altogether admirable, which, when she read, her soul refused to acknowledge as anything but cant, flourish, and tinsel, or at the best, elaborate wordiness, curious, clever, learned, perhaps, happily even tinged with the fascinating hues of fancy, but, God knows, as different from real poetry as the gorgeous and massy vase of mosaic is from the little cup of pure metal, or, to give the reader a choice of similes, as the milliner's of artificial wreath is from the fresh-gathered lily of the field. Caroline, she found, felt the value of the true ore, and knew the deception of the flashy dross. The minds of the two girls being toned in harmony often chimed very sweetly together. One evening they chanced to be alone in the oak parlor. They had passed a long wet day together without ennui. It was now on the edge of dark. Candles were not yet brought in. Both, as twilight deepened, grew meditative and silent. A western wind roared high around the hall, driving wild clouds and stormy rain up from the far remote ocean. All was tempest outside the antique lattices, all deep peace within. Shirley sat at the window, watching the rack in heaven, the mist on earth, listening to certain notes of the gale that plained like restless spirits. Notes which, had she not been so young, gay and healthy, would have swept her trembling nerves like some omen, some anticipatory dirge. In this, her prime of existence and bloom of beauty, they but subdued vivacity to pensiveness. Snatches of sweet ballads haunted her ear. Now and then she sang a stanza. Her accents obeyed the fitful impulse of the wind. They swelled as its gusts rushed on, and died as they wandered away. Caroline, withdrawn to the farthest and darkest end of the room, her figure just discernible by the ruby shine of the flameless fire, was pacing to and fro, muttering to herself fragments of well-remembered poetry. She spoke very low, but surely heard her, and while singing softly, she listened. This was the strain. Obscurest night involved the sky, the Atlantic billows roared, when such a destined wretch's eye, washed headlong from on board, of friends of hope, of all bereft, his floating home forever left. Here the fragment stopped, because Shirley's song, erewhile somewhat full and thrilling, had become delicately faint. Go on, said she. Then you go on too. I was only repeating the castaway. I know, if you can remember it all, say it all. And as it was nearly dark, and after all, Miss Kildar was no formidable auditor, Caroline went through it. She went through it as she should have gone through it. 
The wild sea, the drowning mariner, the reluctant ship swept on in the storm, you heard were realized by her. And more vividly was realized the heart of the poet, who did not weep for the castaway, but who, in an hour of tearless anguish, traced a semblance to his own god-abandoned misery in the fate of that man-forsaken sailor, and cried from the depths where he struggled. No voice divine the storm allayed, no light propitious shone, when, snatched from all effectual aid, we perished, each alone, but I beneath the rougher sea, and whelmed in deeper gulfs than he. I hope William Cowper is safe and calm in heaven now, said Caroline. Do you pity what he suffered on earth? asked Miss Kildar. Pity him, surely. What can I do else? He was nearly broken-hearted when he wrote that poem, and it almost breaks one's heart to read it. But he found relief in writing it, I know he did, and that gift of poetry, the most divine bestowed on man, was, I believe, granted to allay emotions when their strength threatens harm. It seems to me, surely, that nobody should write poetry to exhibit intellect or attainment. Who cares for that sort of poetry? Who cares for learning? Who cares for fine words and poetry? And who does not care for feeling, real feeling, however simply, even rudely expressed? It seems you care for it at all events. And certainly, in hearing that poem, one discovers that Cowper was under an impulse strong as that of the wind which drove the ship, an impulse which, while it would not suffer him to stop to add ornament to a single stanza, filled him with force to achieve the whole with consummate perfection. You managed to recite it with a steady voice, Caroline. I wonder thereat. Cowper's hand did not tremble in writing the lines. Why should my voice falter in repeating them? Depend on it, Shirley. No tear blistered the manuscript of the castaway. I hear in it no sob of sorrow, only the cry of despair. But, that cry uttered, I believe the deadly spasm passed from his heart. Then he wept abundantly, and was comforted. Shirley resumed her ballad minstrelsy. Stopping short, she remarked ere long, One could have loved Cowper, if it were only for the sake of having the privilege of comforting him. You never would have loved Cowper, rejoined Caroline promptly. He was not made to be loved by woman. What do you mean? What I say. I know there is a kind of natures in the world, and very noble, elevated natures too, whom love never comes near. You might have sought Cowper with the intention of loving him, and you would have looked at him, pitied him, and left him forced away by a sense of the impossible, the incongruous, as the crew were borne from their drowning comrade by the furious blast. You may be right. Who told you this? And what I say of Cowper, I should say of Rousseau. Was Rousseau ever loved? He loved passionately, but was his passion ever returned? I am certain, never. And if there were any female Cowpers and Rousseaus, I should assert the same of them. Who told you this, I ask? Did more? Why should anybody have told me? Have I not an instinct? Can I not divine by analogy? More never talked to me either about Cowper or Rousseau or love. The voice we hear in solitude told me all I know on these subjects. Do you like characters of the Rousseau order, Caroline? Not at all, as a whole. I sympathize intensely with certain qualities they possess. Certain divine sparks in their nature dazzle my eyes and make my soul glow. Then again, I scorn them. They are made of clay and gold. The refuse and the ore make a mass of weakness. Taken all together, I feel them unnatural, unhealthy, repulsive. I dare say I should be more tolerant of a Rousseau than you would, Carrie. Submissive and contemplative yourself, you like the stern and the practical. By the way, you must miss that cousin Robert of yours very much, now that you and he never meet. I do. And he must miss you? That he does not. I cannot imagine, pursued Shirley, who had lately got a habit of introducing Moore's name into the conversation, even when it seemed to have no business there. I cannot imagine but that he was fond of you, since he took so much notice of you, talked to you, and taught you so much. He never was fond of me. He never professed to be fond of me. He took pains to prove that he only just tolerated me. Caroline, determined not to err on the flattering side in estimating her cousin's regard for her, always now habitually thought of it and mentioned it in the most scanty measure. She had her own reasons for being less sanguine than ever in hopeful views of the future, less indulgent to pleasurable retrospections of the past. Of course, then, observed Miss Kildar, you only just tolerated him in return. Surely, men and women are so different. They are such in a different position. Women have so few things to think about, men so many. You may have a friendship for a man, while he is almost indifferent to you. Much of what cheers your life may be dependent on him, while not a feeling or interest a moment in his eyes may have reference to you. Robert used to be in the habit of going to London, sometimes for a week or a fortnight together. Well, while he was away, I found his absence a void. There was something wanting. Briarfield was duller. 
Of course, I had my usual occupations. Still, I missed him. As I sat by myself in the evenings, I used to feel a strange certainty of conviction I cannot describe, that if a magician or a genius had, at that moment, offered me Prince Ali's tube, you remember it in the Arabian Nights, and if with its aid I had been able to take a view of Robert, to see where he was, how occupied, I should have learned in a startling manner the width of the chasm which gaped between such as he and such as I. I knew that, however my thoughts might adhere to him, his were effectually sundered from me. Caroline, demanded Miss Keeler abruptly, don't you wish you had a profession, a trade? I wish it fifty times a day. As it is, I often wonder what I came into the world for. I long to have something absorbing and compulsory to fill my head and hands and to occupy my thoughts. Can labor alone make a human being happy? No, but it can give varieties of pain and prevent us from breaking our hearts with a single tyrant master torture. Besides, successful labor has its recompense. A vacant, weary, lonely, hopeless life has none. But hard labor and learned professions, they say, make women masculine, coarse, unwomanly. And what does it signify whether unmarried and never-to-be-married women are unattractive and inelegant or not? Provided only they are decent, decorous, and neat, it is enough. The utmost which ought to be required of old maids, in the way of appearance, is that they should not absolutely offend men's eyes as they pass them in the street. For the rest, they should be allowed, without too much scorn, to be as absorbed, grave, plain-looking, and plain-dressed as they please. You might be an old maid yourself, Caroline. You speak so earnestly. I shall be one. It is my destiny. I will never marry him alone or a Sykes, and no one else will ever marry me. Here fell a long pause. Shirley broke it. Again the name by which she seemed bewitched was almost the first on her lips. Lena, did not Moore call you Lena sometimes? Yes, it is sometimes used as the abbreviation of Caroline in his native country. Well, Lena, do you remember my one day noticing an inequality in your hair, a curl wanting on that right side, and you're telling me that it was Robert's fault, as he had once cut therefrom a long lock? Yes. If he is, and always was, as indifferent to you as you say, why did he steal your hair? I don't know. Yes, I do. It was my doing, not his. Everything of that sort always was my doing. He was going from home, to London, as usual, and the night before he went, I had found in his sister's workbox a lock of black hair, a short, round curl. Hortense told me it was her brother's, and a keepsake. He was sitting near the table. I looked at his head. He has plenty of hair. On the temples were many such rounded curls. I thought he could spare me one. I knew I should like to have it, and I asked for it. He said, on condition, that he might have his choice of a truss from my head. So he got one of my long locks of hair, and I got one of his short ones. I keep his, but I dare say he has lost mine. It was my doing, and one of those silly deeds that distresses the heart and sets the face on fire to think of. One of those small but sharp recollections that return, lacerating your self-respect like tiny pen knives and forcing from your lips as you sit alone sudden, insane-sounding interjections. Caroline! I do think myself a fool, Shirley, in some respects. I do despise myself. But I said I would not make you my confessor, for you cannot reciprocate foible for foible, and you are not weak. How steadily you watch me now. Turn aside your clear, strong, she-eagle eye. It is an insult to fix it on me thus. What a study of character you are. Weak, certainly, but not in the sense you think. Come in. This was said in answer to a tap at the door. Miss Kilder happened to be near it at the moment, Caroline at the other end of the room. She saw a note put into Shirley's hands and heard the words, From Mr. Moore, ma'am. Bring candles, said Miss Kildar. Caroline sat expectant. A communication on business, said the heiress. But when candles were brought, she neither opened nor read it. The rector's fanny was presently announced, and the rector's niece went home. Okay, so in these chapters, we have finally gotten to meet Shirley. We finally see our kind of namesake character, if you will. Um, and she is everything I could hope for and more. Um, definitely the kind of girl that Caroline will benefit from being around. Um, I'm very curious to see where things continue to go with Shirley. Uh, we've only gotten a little taste of her and her relationship with the people around her, her relationship with the town, so I'm very curious to see how things get on. From Caroline, we see a, a pretty decent amount of development uh, character-wise. 
we see her kind of sulking and then uh, Fanny convincing her that she needs to go hang out with people, she needs to go talk to people, she can't keep staying alone in her room all the time, um, and she's very reluctant to do so, but then she does, and she realizes that, you know, maybe being an old maid isn't all bad, maybe there is some benefit to this, or maybe there is some good that could come of it, even if I'm not super happy, whatever. Um, so she goes out and she's doing all these good deeds and she's getting all this exercise and she's basically doing like we do where we're like, if I just do X, Y, Z more, then I will be fulfilled, then I will be happy, whatever. Um, and of course that's not true. <laughs> she goes out and is doing all these things, but eventually it just wears her down. She doesn't become any happier. She doesn't become any more fulfilled, uh, nothing like that. She just is less, I guess, bored. <laughs> But she just runs herself ragged. She has done way too much in too short amount of time. She's just not happy at all. And she's exhausted. She's burnt out. Um, and she says she wants to take on a post. And of course her uncle goes crazy because he's trying to save face in the community. And how is it going to look if she takes up a position somewhere when he is the one that's supposed to be providing for her? It's going to look very bad for him. Um, his position kind of matters to him, so of course he's not going to be super big on that idea. Fortunately, Shirley comes around right in the nick of time to keep her from going entirely crazy or whatever, um, and we see Caroline starting to get better. She's able to talk about uh, Robert without as much, you know, discomfort, what have you. Um, obviously she's still not really over it, but she's working on it. She's working through it. And I think if anybody's going to be the one that helps her, it's definitely going to be Shirley. So I'm very interested to see how things continue to develop. We get to see Mr. York's family, um, in a little bit more depth, which I think is interesting. As we move forward, we'll see how, uh, how much of a role that both his family plays in his life and his actions and choices and how he, as a character, influences the story with his actions and choices. So, this is, things are starting to develop. We are starting to get somewhere. Things aren't as slow going as they were. Uh, things are definitely moving a little bit quicker. Things are happening. We're getting around. We're getting down to business. So, I'm curious to see where this is all headed and where we will find ourselves next. <music> Thanks for listening. This has been chapters 9 through 12 of Shirley by Charlotte Bronte. Stay tuned for Monday's episode where we look at chapters 13 through 15.